Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. I am one of your hosts, Daryl Pace, and the other guy is I'm, Byron I'm the, Pace. just the other guy. The other actually. guy. <laughs> the other guy. That's what happens. It's a good movie, that. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, quite it's funny good. with Will, Will Farrell and. Um, the other um, guy is Byron Pace. That's me. Yeah, the other guy. We have uh, a long show today. It's not long as it is long and boring. It's a brilliant show. It's um, just over two hours long, as you can probably see in your thing, and we are talking all about Atlantic salmon. We do actually touch on a few other things in aquaculture. Uh, Atlantic salmon Atlantic is the is, backbone of it, yeah, isn't it? It, is. it was. Uh, it, it's a podcast we've been meaning to do for a little while, and I do want to do a few more on aquaculture. And I was going to say fishing, and I mentioned this a week ago when we put out the other podcast. This one isn't even really about fishing, although we, fishermen we, we, will we find do it talk about fishing a little bit, it, but yeah. it's not really, it's not a fishing podcast, no. but it is, it is about salmon and everything that's connected with them and the issues that they are, they have been suffering from and still are suffering from. This would be particularly good for students. It will. In fact, I think Beth was saying that it's going to be one for her sister because she's busy trying to um, get the final pieces together for her dissertation. It's all going to be on Atlantic salmon. So if you are a student, and uh, you're listening to this. Give us a give us a a message. Yeah, definitely do. I know that we put we, we did a fishing based podcast probably about two years ago now. Yeah, uh, along similar sort of veins, talking about the fisheries trust and the work that gets done in our river systems here. And one of our friends, uh, he used it as part of um as part of one of his papers that he wrote at university. Yeah, he did. Yeah. That's amazing what we can provide provide <laughs> for people. So, uh, I but think yeah, if, if you are a student, get in touch. We'd love to hear hear from you. Uh, you're not getting any discount on our store because um, I believe that students have more money than most other people. <laughs> from what I have seen, I never went to university, but all of my friends did, and I spent a lot of time drinking with them socially. And they had more money to spl- spend than I ever did. And that's that's because they also have now very large student debts that they're paying No, off. but I, I, I know <laughs> that. But my point being is that they shouldn't get a discount because they've, they've got more money to burn But drinking. you're all getting discounts because uh, now that we've slid onto that topic, there's a big discount going on in our shop right now. Yeah. Um, a lot of the old designs as we're making way for new designs are heavily discounted. So do go and check that out. Uh, but back to the show, even if you're someone who doesn't never cast a line in the river and you're only into shooting or you only like hill walking or all the many other things that are most vast people, array of people who listen, you will still find this interesting. Because most of you will drive past a river at some point in your week, and you will you will you will never look at it the same again after yeah. this. I don't think, think about what's going on underneath Under that the river. Surface. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, very important, fascinating subjects, and pretty worrying with regard to some of the things that we talk about. Uh, but there are people and organisations behind the scenes that a lot of you probably won't even realise, working very hard to try and find the answers so that we can hold on to well, what is. With just with regard to Atlantic salmon, an iconic species, especially for Scotland and the UK. You know, I actually um, saw yesterday online, uh, on the line, uh, we 
there was a picture, I think it was on the BBC, it won, it definitely won the Wildlife Photography of the Year last year, and it was the picture of the seahorse holding the cotton bud underwater. Uh, another one you're talking about, yeah. And it was, you know, obviously ocean and plastics. I actually saw one yesterday that someone posted, and it was a caddisfly larva that had made its shell partly out of plastic parts. Really? It's it's the same. It's the same difference, just in our rivers. Yeah, it was using little bits of plastic um, <sighs> to build its little shell. It's just... Uh, we talk in this podcast about chemicals in our systems and how that has affects the fish as they're going back out to sea and trying to make that transition between fresh water and salt water and it wasn't something that i had really thought of in, in great detail and it's something you can't see yeah. unless you're testing for it but can have massive consequences and we've talked about plastic on this show before and microfibers and microbeads which have now been banned i think in most countries i actually saw um a video i think it was last week I wish I could remember what country it was in, but it was essentially, it was a third world country and they were disposing of their rubbish. And I've, their way I've of seen. disposing the rubbish was a lorry, a tipper truck, backing straight, up to a, a river, the river and just tipping it off into the river, which obviously runs off and into the seas. And, and, and that's that, everyone's problem. And that's the thing that always, I've, it's it's always a hard one when you think about, I know we're talking about uh, environment and plastics now, um, but it, I mean it is related because it goes into the water courses and stuff. It's always a hard one when you see a government back home like the UK or um, in Europe, um, I know they're doing it in America as well, pushing for renewable this, uh, reducing plastics, taxation on on different products, uh, bottle banks, so you get uh, repayment, so the bottle costs more, but you get repayment uh, when you go to the shop and put the thing in. Incentivized, yeah. And then when you do the traveling that we kind of do, and you go around the world, I've been out to the Middle East, and and if you go to Africa and places like that, and you actually look at what's going on, India, Barnes been to India, you look at the rubbish, see what's being thrown into the rivers, and you actually think, what is the point? In a way, because what you're achieving is so small compared to what they're dumping. It's sad back to in. think like that, but it's hard not to. Yeah, it's hard not. It, to. It's it's like because it makes it almost insignificant. That's what yeah. I'm saying, and I know that you shouldn't think like that because every little does help. But when you've got a world population increasing and the, the population increase is in these parts of the world, um, India. Um, Asia, all of those developing, uh, developing countries, countries, countries yeah. and you think that that waste is only increasing because they don't actually have the infrastructure to um, to get rid of it. I mean, only in the fact the National Geographic that's got in front of me this month has uh, pictures from uh, developing countries with rubbish piles bigger, you know, the size of uh, three, four-story buildings uh, in in this country because they've got nowhere to put this rubbish. There Absolutely was, nowhere. There was a report out uh, in the last two weeks, I think, and I haven't actually read anything about it other than what I heard on Radio 4 a couple of days ago. And they have predicted that we essentially have 12 years now to make the changes that we need, to put the changes in place to, to prevent irreversible damage to the planet. I think we there's so many there's so many issues and I, I think especially with um, when it comes to uh, the push for renewable energies and electric electric power it's so hard to uh, go well let's just go electric tomorrow and everything's going to be fine everything's going to run off renewables because we don't actually have the power yet to run if everyone had an electric car no, tomorrow, we couldn't, do it. we couldn't all plug our cars in. and I actually saw another thing online and. Um, it was 
it was <laughs> the, the crazy thing. It was the Tesla. It was a Tesla outlet in the United States, and they had the Tesla charging point mm-hmm. actually at the garage. And they, the guy basically videoed and followed the leads from the Tesla thing to the back of the Tesla garage, and they were running um, big generators, diesel generators at the back to power, to power, the, the to power their electric sockets. And it's things like that where you're like, this is insane. This is absolutely insane that you're using a fossil fuel to then power your Tesla well, that car. Is, that sort of direct connection is utter madness. And I was having this conversation just yesterday. I was fortunate to be... Um, stalking right, almost right in the centre of the Cairngorms yesterday. And the one gent that I was with, uh, he had driven up in his Mitsubishi Outlander um, hybrid car. Is uh, it like one of those 50-50 yeah. hybrid things? No, it's not 50-50, but yeah, it's got battery and yeah. it also has a petrol engine. And I was genuinely intrigued um, and I was asking him about it, about how, how good it is and how he drives it, how it's changed his driving habits. And he said, well, essentially he gets, to, not in the middle of winter, if it's really cold, it just reduces, but on average, he gets about 30 miles off the battery charge. Mm-hmm. So 30 miles, which I was thinking about it for myself, that would actually get me to work and back most days. Yes. Almost. Almost, al- yeah. Almost to work and back every day to, to our offices here. And then the re- then it kicks over onto the, onto the petrol. But then I was saying to him that it's completely pointless if the energy that's been that – if you plug it in at your house – like where's that power come from? Yeah. So unless you know that that power is coming from renewable energies, then you're back to exactly where you started. Again. W- without going in down the line of um, is renewable energies actually viable because of government subsidies and so on and so on, Scotland as a whole is actually pretty um, far forward in the renewable energy. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty green. And we have actually proven multiple times now, I think it was only six months ago, that the country managed to run off of pure renewable energies for four or five days without using um, any, fossil a, any fossil fuels. So the point is, it is there, but you need to look further into the, actually the impact that um, renewable energy has on the environment because they're not impact-free. Oh, no, no, that's the big... <laughs> That's the you big can, lie. You can't win. That's the, the problem. We, Not, could, we, we, could, we could do an entire podcast on renewable energies. And we should, actually. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I, I need to know a little bit more about it myself, but it'd be good to get have another podcast with four people on it, like we like the podcast you're about to listen to today. So if you know anyone, an expert, or someone in leading the field in renewable energies, and they know a thing or two, get in contact with us, because we would like to speak to them about it. Mm. Lots yeah. of interesting things going on in the world. I would. And uh, just as a... We haven't. Well, we haven't. I was going to say as a final thought, but we haven't talked about the new competition for this this podcast. Oh, you haven't. Yeah. So we'll get to that next. But I was uh, just up the Glen first thing this morning doing an interview with somebody about peatland restoration, and uh, I think that's a topic that we should cover because I thought it was to be to be perfectly honest. I thought it was going to be pretty dull <laughs> when I went. Uh, we were we were flying some drones up on this restoration project last week for a I've, short. I've seen it done before. I've filmed a little bit, and um, you have, yeah, uh, to, uh, up in the Highlands. Mm. And I thought I was going to go and do this interview today, and it would be you know pretty short, five minutes, and I'd get it done because it was a job that needed to get done. But I ended up speaking to the lady for probably about twenty minutes after, and it's really quite fascinating. The if if you can hear anything, <laughs> sorry, I got distracted in, in the background of the podcast. That is rain on yeah. the windows. It is it is coming down so I, hard. It, I'm kind of glad me, I got didn't me go out, out on the hill it today. It got me off my stride there of what I was saying. But well, <laughs> what I was saying was that the peatland restoration and what's going on um, across the whole country, not not just Scotland. There's a, there's a huge amount of it that has gone on in the past and is carrying on uh, right now in particularly in the Yorkshire Dales. Um, 
is is really interesting. So I think we we I'm going to try and get somebody on to talk about it to explain what it is that they're doing. But it's it's a big operation. There's quite a lot of government money that's that's going into it. And just as a, as an enticing point, because I thought this was fascinating right now, there are a number of areas that they've been restoring for peatland restoration, and they can trace back the issues to why there's um, why there's big open peat areas to back in World War Two and planes crashing and starting big wildfires there. And it's burnt the peat. And it, it, it really hot burns that eroded the, the surface, I mean, dried they, out the they, peat, and now you've got these big to, open um, peat areas. They often found bombs up mm. on these areas as well because planes that were re- returning Germans or something that they just needed to get, let, rid, of the get rid of their payload yeah. because they were being shot at probably or they were running out of fuel. Um, they would just dump them everywhere. Mm. So, I mean, if they didn't go off, they're, they're stuck there as well so yeah but i can believe it was that f- fascinating that that was the reason that they were there was some of this issue with um with the peatland habitat was because of plane crashes and wildfires a lot during world war Two, and also because during world war Two they didn't have the manpower in the merlins to maintain the habitat yeah so whereas we have all this rotational burning now reducing the fuel load on the hills there was no one there they were all fighting the war so all the heather was getting away, and when a wildfire got going, it just went. went. And that's actually what has damaged a lot of the, these areas that they're trying to fix now. Never knew that. There you go. Oh, there you go. <laughs> learned something new every day. Nothing to do with the podcast today, but I found it fascinating because I learned that just this morning. Thank you for all of the, the nice messages about the previous podcast. That was just me and Byron mm. talking about Norway. I've had quite a number of uh, people saying they really enjoyed it. Even one person saying it was the best podcast we've done yet. That must have been a lie. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, so I really appreciate that. And like I said, um, I would have gone into more detail, but uh, there's more things coming out from it. So so you'll just have to wait, hmm. wait for that. Uh, competition for this week's podcast. We are going to give you the chance to win a Reloading with Rosie Hornady mug. Now, we've already given away one. That was a, a couple of shows ago, uh, but we've got a couple more. So we're going to give away another one. We had a lot of people enter last time. So if you entered desperately wanting the Reloading with Rosie mug and you weren't the winner, now's your opportunity to enter again. Um, and I hadn't, didn't think at all how you were going to enter this, but just, I, just, 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 just put the picture competition. Just put the picture and then just say, I want this mug underneath. Yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that'll do. Yeah, that'll do. We'll, we'll stick it up. It'll be up on Facebook. Check out our Instagram story because we always stick it up on there. And, uh, as we always say, if you don't use the social media platforms and I don't blame you, if you don't use them, then please just feel free Email in the show, and we'll enter you in the draw. Yes, nice and simple. I think we've talked for long enough now. Especially on a long podcast. Yeah, on a long podcast. Enjoy the show, and we will speak to you in two weeks' time. Gents, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. We are sitting in our office on a very rainy, very dull, very typical Scottish autumn day, I think. Um by way of int- we are I know already because from the conversation that we've just had before we hit record that it's going to be a fascinating podcast but just by way of introduction for the people listening uh Mark do you want to just kick off and just explain who you are what you do briefly kind of what your background is yeah I'm Mark Billsby I'm the CEO for the Atlantic Salmon Trust uh the Atlantic Salmon Trust is a UK based charity um that's there to ensure that we have salmon and sea trout in the future so we're a research based organization that brings people together 
find out facts about salmon and sea trout so that we can improve their management. And Will? Um, I'm at Gilly on the River D, first and foremost, I suppose. Um, and also I'm one half of um, Twin Peaks Fly Fishing, um, which is a very, very small uh, fly fishing business where we try to do as much World as we round. can. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, we do as much as we can to promote the sport and um, try and offer ourselves really as that um, first stepping stone for people to get into the sport of any type of fly fishing, but I suppose predominantly salmon fishing, which is, if you don't have the means to get into the sport, it can be a difficult sport to get into that first time. Um, so pretty much anything fly fishing, we're just here to promote and support and get as many people doing it as we possibly can. Because you don't like fly fishing at all, do you, yourself? No, I can't mean, stand you have it. to force yourself yeah, to do absolutely. it. It's a terrible <laughs> job to have. Yeah. Imagine doing that as a full-time job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some people wish they could. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm just trying to work out where to kick off here. We're going to be talking predominantly about salmon. I mean, most people, well, certainly people in the countryside, maybe who live near a river, will be aware that there are issues with populations of salmon over time. I wouldn't be surprised if our big sort of urban centres probably couldn't even ID a salmon if it was shown to them, which is probably the sad truth of it. Mark, can you give us or paint us a picture of the state of Atlantic salmon um, in, in in this country. Uh, and maybe touch a little bit on the historical plan of how it was and what we've seen trending-wise today, because ultimately that is why we're concerned about Atlantic salmon. Yeah, well, just the name, Atlantic salmon. It, it's a fish. Um, to understand the fish and what the factors they're impacting, you need to understand a little bit about their life cycle. So you've got a fish that spawns in fresh water, and the juveniles will then spend one, two, three maybe more years in fresh water before heading out to sea. And they swim right across the Atlantic. So the fish that leave um, Scotland, uh, if they're going to spend one sea winter, come back as grills, they're probably going up as far as the Norwegian Sea and feeding off there. If they're going to be multi-sea winter fish, they're going all the way across the Atlantic to the west coast of Greenland. It's crazy, so isn't it? You need to think of these <laughs> as Atlantic salmon, truly Atlantic salmon, because they cover this, the whole of that ocean. And if you look at the context of salmon in the 1970s, there are about 8 to 10 million salmon swimming around in the Atlantic for all of the countries uh, where salmon originate from, all the way around. So, so to, just to explain that to people, we always think of Scotland, UK, the Atlantic salmon that run here, but there's a European... Comp- you're talking about the European component. I'm talking, well. about, uh, I'm talking about American, Canadian, Everything. Icelandic, Norwegian, okay. the whole shooting caboodle of salmon that swim out into the Atlantic. Um, there were about 8 to 10 million of them in the 70s. We're now down to about 3 million. How do we know there were 8 to 10 million in the 70s? Um, there is... There are two organisations that have um, a duty to look after salmon at sea on an international basis. The first is the North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organisation, which is a bit of a mouthful, so it's just called NASCO. NASCO is an international treaty um, that is there to bring governments together to look at things like fishing quotas, um, quite often hearing the news about what's been happening at Greenland and fishing quotas in Greenland. And this, they're the people that bring the governments together and get them to sign international agreements there. They have a scientific organisation linked to them to provide them with the facts, and that's the International Council for the Exploration of the Seas, 
ICES. And ICES' job is to count fish and provide advice on fish stocks. And they've been counting fish systematically um, for years, and they've been able to go back and see what was there in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and where we are now. And they've seen this downward trend. Uh, Just remind us of stocks. those numbers again, from what to what? 8 to 10 million, yeah. between 8 and 10 million, down to about 3 million. So that, that's, that's not the a content. lot. A three million across globally. The whole Atlantic. The whole of the pretty, I'm Don't, actually. I, I'm a little shocked to I'm, be honest. The numbers of ten I actually thought were relatively. Yeah. Not that big. I actually took in the grand scheme of the world. Yeah. And when, when now you're down to three potentially. That's, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy because when I think, you know, our little river here. So this the uh, west water here runs into the North Est as part of the North Est system. Um, I don't know for the last couple of years, but certainly a few years ago, there was about two thousand fish running up there. So about eight to twelve thousand run up the North Esk. It, that's pretty significant when you look at three million. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I'm, I'm. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so, and we think earlier on there would have been more, but just with modern sort of estimates, that's that sort that's of the figures that, that we can, can get. Okay. So we're just we're more accurate now. Because of the technology that's improved. no, even when they're so they they always try and compare apples with apples, so that when you go back in time, um, so it they're, can they're, always be comparable. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Hmm. And I suppose the big question that everyone is asking, and this probably gets to the 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 big question the for for your project, the the missing salmon project, which is going to be a lot of what we're going to talk about, is where have they gone? This could take three, four hours. Yeah, no, no, no. I need to make stuff comfortable. Yeah, um, from a basic point of view, just give people an idea of what we kind of know. And then we're going to dig into a lot about what we we don't know, but what do we know about the population decline? What what I think has been shown um, when you look at various rivers, such as the such as the D, you know, as a nearby one, they've always produced roughly the same amount of smolts. It's come down a really small amount. But no so, same amount of fish going back out back to sea. Back out to sea. Yep. Uh, so, so that June. tells you, just to, to elaborate on that, that tells you that the actual river system itself, in terms of what it can sustain, is quite healthy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's, and it's, it keeps a relatively constant number. So, it's a production line. Mm-hmm. And um, so, we, we get these fish coming out, uh, all produced. And what we've seen is that marine survival has dropped. So the number of fish going to sea has dropped. So if you had a, um, it's dropped from about 25%, some some estimates as high as 40% of the smolts that went to sea uh, in the 1960s um, would come back as adult salmon. Very high. Yeah. So if you put a million fish out to sea, that means you're going to get 400,000 back, which is brilliant. The What we've seen now is that marine survival has dropped to about 3%. So if you put that same million fish out, you're only getting 30,000 back. And that's when you need... That's 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 the rub of it. You've just got such few fish coming back these days. That's a tight number to work with. 30,000 to re- basically restock, keep restocking a population. When you think how much they have to go through when they're at sea, all the, the things, not, not just fishing, natural things that, that happen to them. Yeah, and all- in the whole Atlantic. <laughs> you know, you've it's got the river ocean. system, the estuary, <laughs> and then the entire Atlantic where you've got to try and find where where this is happening. Because to some extent, we can we can 
control what's happening on our inland rivers. I know I, I sit on the Ask Rivers and Fisheries um, Trust here, and we're always trying to open up bits of river that were that have been blocked historically. There's some sort of barrier there, so you open it up, the fish can go up, they can spawn. It's it's more uh, more ground, more riverbed for young fish to live in, and then ultimately go, turn into smolts and go out to sea. But you that there's a limit. Eventually, there's a carrying capacity. You, you you can have the the perfect or close to perfect system. You have a maximum carrying capacity. In terms of what we can do and kind of control, we can't do any more than that. I mean, there must be plenty of rivers in Scotland which are in that kind of state. Well, I th- I think we need to we need to really understand. Um, there's much more of an interaction between freshwater environment and the marine environment, and we found um, there's uh, in, s- some people have found that. Um, bigger smolts survive better. So um, whether that's being able to outswim a predator or have better body reserves to get them over a lean time, we, we don't know the answer yet. But we have seen that um, there's this, there's the quality of the smolt from fresh water can impact what's happening um, at sea. And it can be something as simple as uh, exposure to a pesticide residue. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the pesticides that are knocking around at incredibly low levels and have been banned but was, they're still being detected and we're seeing that when you do experiments to um, see how well smolts adapt from a freshwater environment to a saltwater environment they're not doing as well if they've been exposed to this um, pesticide Is that because of that crossover between salts and how, how their system, their body system changes? Yeah, well they go from salt? being a freshwater fish to a saltwater fish, so they've got to deal with the salt, they've got to deal with being able to, the whole kidney function changes. The same way that we can't drink salt water, um, they can't when they're a freshwater fish, but they need to be able to when they go to sea. And so their so, body goes through an actual physical change. Yeah, it's, it is a huge physiological change they're going through. And if you've had a pesticide come in and disrupt the fish, then the fish, the fish, you know, we're seeing much greater uh, mortality rates associated with fish that have got these. But there's all of these factors, and um, what what we're trying to do with the missing salmon project is bring all of that knowledge together and put it in one place, create this framework um, of the likely suspects, so we can then triage them in the same way you would in a hospital. You deal with it the things that are causing the greatest damage first. Um, but you need to understand it before you try and fix it. And it's understanding what is killing that fish right across the board. Because if you put, there's four of us, five of us here. If you ask us all, what are the top five problems for salmon in the world? We will probably give different answers. But there'll and be a few crossovers. be a few yeah, crossovers. Yeah. And, and what we need to do is we... There's, there's no shortage of opinions in fisheries management in Scotland, Some the UK, more valid than others here. Or all over the world. It's, you know, you put um, in five of us, you will get at least 10 opinions. And so what we're trying to do, so the likely suspects framework, is bring all of that together so that we can understand um, what is killing the fish. Because if you've got that, if you, if you know what is truly killing the fish and where they're going missing, then you're halfway there to being able to fix it. Is, you can't fix if you can't fix what you don't know. Can't fix what you don't know. It's difficult, isn't it? It's it's so vast, and when we look at, I mean, we, we've kind of established that a lot of the the issue lies at the point where 
the fish are going back out back out to sea. The issues that are out there and the vastness of the potential problem is it overly ambitious to be trying to look at everything with with i mean you can look at everything if you've got unlimited time and unlimited funds i don't imagine you have either of those is it overly ambitious to be look trying to look at everything and potentially not coming to a conclusion rather than trying to find an absolute definitive answer on a smaller number of uh, topics or uh, or issues that you think could be the problem i think the key is um to work on the best information that you've got and not be paralysed by fear of the unknown. You need to recognise it. But you need to know, you need to be able to bring together what you know because that allows you to deal with the problems that you're aware of and it also steers you on finding out the bits that you don't know. I'm trying to avoid sounding like Donald Rumsfeld here. <laughs> um, the, but you're trying to steer research programs so if, if we want to know what the impacts of pesticides are in the real world or what the bycatch of pelagic trawlers is in the real world then we need to steer that research but we need to be able to say well, you know, from the information we've got bycatch is an issue or it's not an issue and then if it is an issue we need to find out why it's an issue and if you can do that you're halfway there to being able to deal with the problem because you can um look at how you can manage um, put things in place yeah. to, to try and mitigate but you do it on the best information you've got so when we do our first iteration of this likely suspects framework it'd be a big step in the right direction but then when we look back in 10 years time and we're on our third or fourth iteration of this likely suspects framework we're, we're going to look at it and go we were that, was so quite, wrong. that was so wrong it was it was crude how could we think this at the time but you have to you have to take that big first step and you have to have the confidence to go and do that and you need to bring together some really good minds to work on this to bring together that information so right now you're at the point of drawing up a list of all the potential problems that are that are causing the issue of uh, non-returning salmon, and then you're going to go go through them with the best people of those subjects and yep. try and work out what direction it takes. So we're trying to split the salmon's life cycle into a series of what we're calling domains. So you can look at the, the headwaters of a river, the main stem, the estuary, coastal environment, and then offshore. And we're trying to work out what's dying in the salmon's life cycle, which salmon are dying in each of these domains. And then for each domain, what is killing the fish in that domain? So we're, we're breaking it down into bite-sized chunks that we can get our heads around. Yeah. And we are lucky enough to have international support for this. You know, we're, we're a small organisation. Um, but NASCO, the North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organisation, have called for um, ICES to be able to bring together their experts to help us form this fr suspects framework for the marine environment. We need to do the same in the freshwater environment, uh, and that's bringing together the local fisheries managers. So to get for the fishery boards, trusts, Marine Scotland, the UK government, and the NGOs, bring them together, sit them down in a room, and go, here's the evidence that we've got for each of these areas. And let's see if we can triage it in the same way. If you went into a hospital and you weren't breathing, you would be seen first over somebody who had a sprained ankle. 
Yeah. And each domain, I suppose, will have um, will be able to manage differently if the domain in the deep salt water of the Atlantic, uh, there's less you're going to be able to do about that from a management's perspective as the headwaters of the river or the, even the estuary uh, se- section. You know, in that section, there might actually be something physically we can do, if, yeah. but we need to find out where these problems are happening. Hmm. I mean, so, some of it in terms of the, the rivers is... It is on a small scale that it is being done already. Why, why do we not have? Why do we have uh, um, less less power in this particular river when they electrofish it? Okay, there's a barrier here. They need to open up another another bit of river. So that it is being done, but you're talking on a vast scale from top to bottom, straight back out to sea and all the way back to the river. Yeah, and it's also focusing those resources. So it's making sure that you know our aim is to be able to provide fishery managers. You know, people have to take the day-to-day decisions on on where to spend money, on how to get the best return to their fishery, on to help them, provide them with the tools to do their job, so they can say, well, the best investment we can get is to remove all the obstacles, uh-huh. and then we can go to they can it, it then empowers them to go to the likes of Scottish government, and say, we need some financial support here. If you want salmon, if Scotland wants salmon, and we need some financial support to help us do this, to remove these obstacles, because it's the most effective tool that we've got to manage fish. Will, you being a ghillie on the river, you're speaking to fishermen all the time. It'll be on, and has been for years, on people's minds, the fact that they're not catching as many fish, especially the older guys, I would imagine. Yeah. They're not as catching as many fish as they were 30 years ago. Absolutely. Uh, this year made a slight exception because we had no water to catch yeah. any fish. But... What is what is the general feeling? What's the opinion that people come up with? Because everyone everyone's an expert, especially yeah. fishermen. They're we're, we're the worst. Of course, yeah. As to why there's no salmon anymore. What's the arguments that people are coming up with? I'm not necessarily asking you to justify them, but what do, what do you hear? Because you, you see a lot of people. You see, you see a number of things, and every person has their own um, idea on what the problem is. Um, fishermen. Um, and you know, myself included, after tough weeks fishing, it's very easy to point the finger at any flying bird that's flying up and down that you think might be might be eating them, or 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 predators in the in the saltwater environment and things like that. Um, you can be very quick to point the finger, um, and I'm not 100 sure if that's necessarily um, the answer. I think a lot of the guys would honestly say, if you put them on the spot and said, "What is the one thing?" I think most people would say they don't know. I'd say the vast majority would be, you know, global warming, overfishing at sea, um, maybe what the salmon are eating, freshwater predation, saltwater predation, uh, salmon farming on the West Coast. All the things that we've all heard before um, are kind of the things that you just keep hearing over and over again. But I've never met anybody that can sort of say this, this one thing is it. Mm. Um and it's a difficult one because the worrying thing is, you know, we know more about the the landscape of the moon than we do underneath our own oceans. Um, and so trying to find out where these, what's happening to these four to eight inch long fish as they enter the Atlantic Ocean. And we're hoping for them to come back, trying to find out exactly where this problem is. It's big, dark and scary down there. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And I think, you know, worryingly, we just kind of, we point fingers at what we think, what we can physically see. Mm. Um, and I think the really interesting thing about this project, whether you're going to find an answer in the deep dark of the Atlantic, uh, I'm, I'm not 
quite so sure about. But being able to tick off each of these areas uh, and be so able to... So you can leave it behind and say, okay, that's not the Yeah, problem. and not so much um, on a specific river by, river by river basis. So we've talked about removing barriers, but that's very much on a, it's a specific uh, very system. local yeah. area, isn't it? Uh, and this is looking... Um, I mean, Mark will tell me how many river systems the uh, Missing Salmon Project is covering. Uh, but it's not just one river, it's a whole area going into one one uh, huge area of the Murray Firth, which I think is a quite large percentage yeah. of salmon we're, running to. We're, we've got a tracking programme to look at seven rivers, what we can learn as smolts go down to sea, out, out of the headwaters, down the main stem out to sea for the first 100 kilometres of their ocean journey. This hasn't started yet, though, has it? No, no, no. we're just gearing up for it um, for the next, uh, when the smolts go to sea, which will be next spring. Um, but with the framework, the likely suspects framework, we're taking right across the Atlantic. So if our Icelandic friends have got good information, our friends in Canada, America have got good information, we're bringing that all together. We We don't want to just say, well, it wasn't invented uh, in the northeast of Scotland, therefore we're ignoring it. Yeah. It's right across the Atlantic. Uh, bring that all together um, so that we can have the best understanding of we can, so that we can prioritise. And as you say, if some issues that we can't deal with, then we don't. We need to recognise them, but we need to be able to compensate for them elsewhere if we want salmon. So we can put more put more effort into either looking after the fresh water. Things that we can do. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've thought over the years I've thought about it a lot. I think as all people who have a passion for migratory fish, not just salmon, sea trout as well, but it's a very different conversation that. And I understand mainly from being on the trust of the carrying densities of the river, and I know that our rivers, particularly around here, they have very, very good carrying densities, and they're they're putting a lot of smolts out to sea. So in terms of what's happening in our river systems, it's not 100% under control, but as much as you can you can manage, it it's looks pretty good. And we do have fairly good returns by comparison to other rivers in Scotland here. But there's still a massive amount of fish that are not coming back, which historically were. If you look back, I, I've looked at um, stats on the North Earth back to the 1940s. And it, it's crazy when you see the numbers that used to, to come in there. And the only thing that has sort of carried weight in my the arguments that I have in my head has been predation out at sea. The big unknown of, is there someone who shouldn't be scooping up salmon at sea, scooping up salmon? And then the issue of warming seas and where their food is moving to. Is it moving out with the range that they would normally migrate to to go and eat? Uh, and I know that's been speculated on in, in years gone by, particularly with thin fish coming back. I, mean, what, I, I don't know who wants to, to pick this up, but what do we know about that particular aspect, about the actual place that they go to go, uh, that our fish go to feed and what's happened in that area? We're, as technology moves on, um, we're getting more and more information um, about the habits of fish at sea. And they, they can do it. There's a huge number of ways in which they can follow fish um, and follow the fish's food. And, and we're really starting to get a, a better understanding um, of where the fish go. You know, 30 years ago, small silver tags were put on a fish. And they, you know, if they were found by in a trawl or something then they would be reported as we've caught this tag fish here there and everywhere um nowadays you're putting on satellite tags so you can follow the fish back you know uh people in north america have followed fish back from their feeding grounds of greenland as they've started that migration back 
um, putting data loggers on the fish so you can work out the temperature and depth that they've been swimming at. Actually, when when you understand navigation, you can work out um, where that fish has been feeding in the sea. So if you know that they're at a certain temperature and depth, we know where noon is, we can get longitude and latitude um, from the fish. You um, must have to tag, a, you must have to track, a, given what we've just said about the amount of fish that are lost at sea, you're going to yeah. have to track a lot of fish to end up with something that's going to be a full cycle of data. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's bringing together the different technologies. And it's like, well, this, this bit of kit will give you that piece of the jigsaw puzzle. This bit of kit will do another one. And and you need more of those to get the full picture. Um, so it is, it is difficult. Um, and working in the marine environment is expensive. Yeah. And I'm going to bring it back to this is why we need to bring together everything that we know into a framework so that when we're doing, if we're going to commission work at sea, that it, it's for a reason. It passes the so what test. So we're doing it for that reason. It's not for the sake of more it's research. It's not for academic reasons. This, All of this research has to be done to have better management. If it does, because if, if we want to, re, if we if we want to study the decline of salmon till there are not any more salmon, that's one thing. If you want to understand salmon, so you can reverse that decline, that's that's very different proposition, and that's what we're trying to do. And I think it's what a lot of the fishery managers um, around the UK are trying to do. And we just our job is to try and help inform them provide them with the tools to do that so the the, the tracking program that you're going to be undertaking i know you've got some bits of kit on on the floor here just explain how that's gonna how you're going to undertake that and what over what period of time you're expecting to get data back what's the the thing you, you assured me it wasn't a bomb it looks like a large water bottle yeah, yeah. those watching in uh, black and white uh, <laughs> it, it is it it looks like a two liter bottle it, mm. it's quite heavy it's had the batteries removed and this is um a listening device and what it's going to do it's an acoustic receiver and we put these on the seabed uh, or in rivers and then we tag our fish with a tag that's uh, about the size of a paracetamol tablet yeah yeah, it is, yeah pop that in there and it's an acoustic tag and it makes a coded ping and it goes I'm number 37 I'm number 37 oh wow so it's, uh, a, it's a, a, a sound signature you can yeah, read yeah so that goes down as the Russian submarines are tracking yeah. <laughs> So we're going to tag fish on seven rivers around the Murray Firth, so from the Deveron up to oh. the Oikel and the Shin. The main river. I am rather fond of the Deveron. Yeah. So, and um, we're going to follow the fish from their headwaters as they go down the main stem and then out to sea. And we're going to have uh, a series of these listening devices in arrays and array I suppose the scientific term is just like a curtain of these, a wall of these listening devices. So the fish go past, and if they go within 700 metres on you know reasonable weather, um, they'll be detected. Um, so that tag, which is about the size of a paracetamol tablet, will be detected about 700, up to 700 metres away isn't it? by this. And it'll go, ah, number 37's just gone past, and um, we'll be able to pick up uh, sorry, these are 700 metres apart. They've got about a 400 metre range. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so we put them every 700 metres. And how far the... how far out? So you're down, down the river and obviously at the mouth of the river. Yep. But then how far out to sea are you placing those? So the furthest we can monitor fish is about 100 kilometres from the mouth of the river. How deep can these, these go? Oh, um, these can go, well, as long as you piece of rope, really. Okay. Um, they're quite... 
they're, they're really they're, robust. They're not left on the seabed. They're, we, they're hung. Um, no, no, no. We, we, we put about 80 kilos of weight on the bottom of this. Oh, boy. And then oh, um, boy. in deep water, there's um, they listen. This is what they're really good at. And you can also say, listen for this release signal. And when you ask it to release, there's an automatic release. It'll pop a buoy up to the surface, and you can then pick it up. Because you oh, need to recover clever. it. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say, because leaving something on the seabed, I spent many years underwater, and stuff moves. It's amazing. One, what well, tidal flow, just yep. fishing boats going over, whatever it may be. You know, you can leave. Um, I've, I've done it before. You've left an anchor there one day. under Someone's dropped an anchor. You go, and it's 100 metres away from where they, they said yep. it, or 200 metres. So wow. it can be a real pain on the seabed because just, things just move. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And there's lots of people. The big news to me in the Maori Firth, it shouldn't be news, but is how often the seabed is trawled. Oh, yeah. And dredge. And, well, yeah, dredge. So, so what are you going to do about that? Because yeah. people so, pick those up. Right? So we're avoiding the areas where there's lots and lots of dredging. Because the dredges would, depends how they operate, well, could destroy, could easily Oh, absolutely. A, a dredge is the equivalent of a snowplow yeah, hitting yeah, this, is, yeah. and it will go ping. And, and worse than that, it will probably damage the trawl. Mm. So, and, and you can't get the data back until you retrieve it. Exactly. Okay, so that's why it's vital important. So, are you going to put out once you start the project? Are you going to make it very publicly aware what these are? Because it is possible someone might find one somehow. Yeah, yeah. there's a note on them saying it's not. A bomb. Oh, there is. Okay. And uh, <laughs> call this number, and it's uh, it's part of the ocean tracking network. So you phone up the number, and because I tell you what, if there's not a label, the bomb squad will blow it. <laughs> Daryl would have been out there <laughs> in his old job. You don't know what it is, you blow it. Yeah. Um, it, it does looks say very much like the thing we blew up on Sky. Yeah. And I mean, Acoustic, acoustic monitoring receiver. Although this one's been underwater, this is one that we've taken back. Uh, and this was in deep water. And it was only in for a few weeks, but you can see how much barnacle yeah, growth's growth has been on it. And that's been cleaned up. So um, we put these out. We have to... These will go... These will be put into the sea in March next year. And uh, March 2019, we'll put them out. Um, we've got a series of arrays so we can look at where the fish where we think the fish are going to be, we've targeted these curtains or fences so that the fish will have to swim across them. And we'll know how many fish survive going down the river, so what, how many smolts go out to sea mm-hmm. from the ones that we've tagged. So we'll look at the percentage loss. And then we'll look at the percentage losses as they go out for that first part of the journey. Because it's it's an area that on this side of the Atlantic we don't know that much about. Well, There's, that first phase, once they get up to That first phase. And we've seen our, our friends on the Deveron and the Dee I've been doing this work for about three years, and they were expecting lots of problems in their estuary. You mean they've already been tagged? They some have been tagged over the last the three system. years. Okay. Uh, I'm assuming those those trackers, if a, a dolphin or something eats a salmon, it's probably just going to pass through, so you can get the tracker back eventually. Well, I don't maybe you won't get the tracker back. But you? I, I said well, earlier passes through, right? about, about the technology dolphin. changing. Yeah. So this is the basic tag. Yeah. And we're using a lot of these. We're using um, about two hundred and fifty pounds each. Oh wow! And these, 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 these are the basic. That tiny ones. little thing you got in your hand. Yeah, this, quid. This, uh, two hundred and fifty quid for one of these. We need to start making trackers. Um, <laughs> and but that's the basic. The new ones that are coming out as the technology develops. There's ones that are temperature and depth. So it tells you um, when in that coded ping that it makes, it can go. I'm number 37, and I'm now at 37 degrees. Yeah, I'm warm. I'm warm. I've been eaten <laughs> I'm by... I'm in a, the belly. <laughs> I've been eaten by something. Yeah. Or I'm at 25 degrees. 
It was probably a shark, you know, dogfish or something that's slightly warmer. Huh. Or um, I'm on I'm, land. I'm starting. <laughs> yeah. I'm starting I'm to flying. swim, swim yeah. around in a cod-like fashion. <laughs> Chances are, yeah. eaten by cod. But the new tech that's coming out, I think next year, um, which our researchers—I'm I'm not one of the researchers—but they they keep bending my head to see if we can afford any of these, is the predator tags, which go. Something's just eaten me. And it, the, there's a coating on the outside of the tag that when it gets digested, changes the ping. So we know that it's a predator. It's not been caught up in a net or something like that. Oh, wow. We know that a predator has eaten that. We won't know what predator, but by piecing together the different bits of the jigsaw to say, well, I've gone up to 37 yeah, degrees. Body temperatures and stuff. You know, yeah. uh, or I've gone down to this depth. Uh, the depth or yeah. I'm behaving like a seal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it's gone up to 37 degrees, it's behaving like a seal as it goes past the arrays. Yeah. Probably is a seal. Probably is a seal. Just out of interest, what, what depth do we know salmon go to? Um, or do we not really know that yet? We do know that. Because uh, some of these, some of the pop-up, the satellite tags, where they do returning adults, have shown yeah, that these these are deep-sea fish. And these, these will dive down to several hundred metres. Wow. And um, feed and then come back up to the surface. I don't know why. I always yeah. had it in my mind that they were kind of... Relatively would feed at the surface. Up. Yeah, high yeah, up and the water column. It is several hundred metres. And I suppose they will just follow the currents, won't they? So, you know... They Food that's the... coming on the currents as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we thought that. <laughs> we're but wrong. Then, <laughs> but then we put these trackers in there. Yep. You're supposed and, to get gilly. You're supposed uh, to no, know no, no, what no, no, happened. No, no, no. I know what these experts tell me. You should have read the reports from the D. There you go. Because the fish came out, and these fish have got to head north. But for some reason, they came out of the river and headed southeast. To where? I don't know. We only had the the, the, um, the receivers are only out so far. I think they went out about four kilometres. And again, in the Murray Firth, they've seen that fish where we'd think they'd be across the, the northern half of the Murray Firth, sort of heading north. They've hugged the coast close, along the coast of Banff before heading. So this is to find out. And I think we've all got... Um, you know, if I was a betting man and ideas. I didn't know, I'd have agreed entirely with yeah. you. But the fish, once you put one of these in, show us where they're going. And that's what we're able to do with some of this technology is lift the lid off and just have just have a look, see where they're going. It's not... Everyone thinks science is some dark and mysterious art. It's not... It's as simple as getting away to look at the fish when we can't see them below the water. But, but, but I mean, this technology has only relatively been available in the last five years or so. But yep. I mean, having something that size, that's... I know the way GPS on land has gone. I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we were using bricks and needed 10 power banks to supply it. Now, my watch does it. Yep. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's only now that the technology has been available for us to actually look at this. So, I've got another tag here, which is um, a Kelt or an adult tag. Okay. So it's like the size of a, a AA battery. Yeah. 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 And that will last a few years. In It'll keep pinging. So, so, so same, it, it speaks same to the technology, same technology. Yeah. All, all, it all works together. So, hopefully, as everything gets miniaturized, the big tag will get as small as this little tag. Because 10 years ago, um, as you say, the, the smallest tags were the size of a brick. And now we're able to put these into a smalt without damaging the smalt. Too much. What do you... 
there's a there's a limit to how far away that you said about 100, 100 kilometers. So yeah. at that point, essentially, it goes dark. You you won't get any pings. You know that they've disappeared beyond that point, yeah. and they're going north. We that think that way. You also have. Are you also going to be using a smaller number of satellite tags to see what happens beyond that point? We can't. I think that's um, at the moment we're taking we're taking uh, it's 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 steps. So okay. we want to follow. And others are doing this. And once you start getting into that really open open sea water, uh, open ocean work, it gets really expensive. Really. I mean, the program we're doing in the Murray Firth, we're, we're just trying to raise just over a million pounds. Okay. Um, for the first year, which is most of that's for the capital cost. And then it probably costs us about two or three hundred thousand pounds each year to run it. Yeah, so it's um, not insignificant amounts. No, of no, no. It's for an, for a charity. That's a, that's a big portion yeah, big, of our big amount. Uh, is there? Oh, I know you're you're walking. We're, we're walking. You're working with um, other nations as well. But are other countries doing similar work to find out exactly what's going on in the same manner using these tags, using the pinging system, so you can get a bigger overall picture globally? Yeah, very much so. Um, the uh, North Americans have been doing this for a few more years. Um, the company that we use is a Canadian company. It's been developed over there, and we're really learning from them. So it's been tried and tested. This. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we're, we're building, up, building upon their help and support and expertise to be able to do that. And they've been following from... Uh, the American-Canadian border, uh, all the way up through to Greenland and Labrador. So it's it's bringing that experience And that's here. all on the Atlantic side? It's all on the Atlantic, and it's building it up. And the Norwegians are doing similar work, and other people are, are big studies in Denmark. And it's, again, bring all that knowledge together. Get out of these ivory towers, bring it together, and make it in a form that's accessible. And do we people. know what they what they found? That's it's just what I was going to ask. Years. This is what, what I was... What were their findings... Yeah. Well, the the biggest one for um, I think some of the Canadians sort of to show the the use and to me to pass this so what test. So why are we doing all this work? What they found when they used this kit in Canada was as the fish went down to sea, they weren't making it because there was a sea bass were coming up the way, uh, striped bass were coming up into the waters and were specialising in feeding on smolt. And the conservation regulations uh, in Canada had been geared towards protecting striped bass. And it was this law of unintended consequences. By protecting the striped bass, you had massively increased this predator, um, which was then preying upon the salmon smolts as they went to sea. So they they were finding that as a significant part of the... Yeah, and they found that the tags went into the sea bass, went into into the area where the sea bass were, and then the tags started behaving like sea bass. Amazing. That's interesting. So I suppose, and you know, there's absolutely nothing to to back this at all. But you can start looking at different patterns, um, and you'll know over the past few years, cod numbers have gone I down. You're about to say quite, mackerel because that was one of my next uh, questions. Well, so. <laughs> cod numbers dropped quite significantly. Um, and I think I'm right in saying there's been various works done to bring cod numbers back up now. And yes. they have been coming back it has up improved, I in the last sort of five, six, seven well, years. That's that's the route. Because when, when the Atlantic Salmon Trust was thinking, right, we've got a really big problem here. How do you solve it? It's don't go and invent, reinvent the wheel. Go and see what other people have done. And the work that we're doing is modelled on the cod fishery. So in the Irish Sea stocks, so that, again, putting this likely suspects framework together, what's killing the cod at different stages of their life cycle? Can we fix it? 
And by separating the fact from the fiction, they've been able to target measures to protect the cod stocks, which is slowly leading to a recovery. It's, they're by no means out of the woods yet, but it, it's starting to turn around the problem. And that is a fish that really has all its problems out it of does, sea. It does, yeah, yeah, it does. And it has ma- is managed by humans. So it is possible. So it is possible. Let's not give up hope. Let's see what the problems a are. A lot of that was overfishing, though. Was it? A lot of it was over- identified as overfishing for cod. Overfishing for cod and also... Uh, <laughs> Things like net design and yeah for bycatch uh, yeah. yeah and also where where the important areas. Tell you what, Norwegian cod are bloody big by comparison Come to by ours. Car- yeah. Comparison to ours, I think we used to have big cod. Yeah, we used to have big cod, but they've gone. I read. Uh, I didn't finish reading the whole thing, but I kind of glanced over a paper that was sent to me recently about the increase in mackerel numbers on our coastal yep. regions and the potential impact that that might have on our smolts. I would imagine being the 100-kilometer range, you might capture that now with this information, whether that has any valid, uh, if it's valid or not. I think I think what we need to do is um, the mackerel. The mackerel is a really interesting theory, and um, it's not to mix metaphors. It might have legs. Yeah, um, or fins. Or fins. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, but what it needs doing is it needs the homework doing on it. The... Uh, the gentleman who's putting it forward is highly respected, very clever guy, and he needs he needs to get some published papers out on this, because then once you've got this, once it's in the scientific literature, the, the way it science works, we can then bring it into this likely suspects framework and go with the information we've got that's been accepted by this fisheries community. We can then go that's 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 accounting for. X percentage of the problem it may not be all of the problem. Mm. It may be part of the problem. And is there anything that we can do to then to manage that? Um, but we need to establish and understand what the problem is. Because to say that mackerel are are preying on salmon smolts, um, it's got potential. Mm. You know, a big mackerel is certainly big enough to eat oh, a salmon sure. smolt. You know how vicious it um, But we never really see. I don't think people have seen salmon smolts no, in mackerel. But I wonder I wonder if the reason for that is that a lot of the mackerel that we catch off the, the coast here, they're quite close to the coast, and it's also what May onwards. Most of the smolts will be gone by then. Well, um, um, no, it's May that we'll be expecting them. It's May, June that we'll be expecting the smolts to be in our coastal area. Are they still hanging around? Yeah. But they're, so, they, start, they start migrating down the river from, what, late March? We'll start, uh, for our timetable for, for the work that we're doing, is we will tag the fish in rivers in small traps in April, middle of April. Oh, April, onwards. okay. So it'll be May. By, oh, so there definitely is a crossover between... We the, see yeah. that our biggest small one kind of May-June time. Yeah. May, okay. So it's just picking it up, see where they get to. So if we see that the fish get through all the fresh water... Get through the estuary, and then we're losing them between the two outer arrays. Then it could be. Then there's something. Op- what we then have to look at what's operating in that area to find out what's killing them in that domain. I suppose the also also the difficult thing with it is is you're kind of doing a project like this, and you really want to find the answer, mm-hmm. but you're probably going to find a part of um, a bigger picture. A, a bigger picture, yeah. And Lots of little things going absolutely, on. Absolutely, but you might find... It's probably compound. very unlikely to be... It's very know. unlikely yeah. to be one thing. One big thing. Yeah. I, but I, I think we can pretty 
Got to say, it's, it's, it's not going to be, be one thing. I suppose when you maybe have, uh, let's hypothetically say, the the difficulty with feeding is really impacting stocks, then you don't need stocks returning. Then you don't need much in terms of other little things to to have an exponential effect yeah. on the population. Absolutely. So when we've talked about marine survival, if you've gone from having three or four hundred thousand fish returning to a river to Twenty or thirty thousand fish, then a bycatch of a coastal net, or as a proportion, over exploitation uh, in a river. You know, if there's no catch and release, then again that that has a disproportionate effect. There's just not enough fish to go. On. A fish is dead where, however, it's killed, but it's just because there's not enough getting back to spawn, and um, that's what we need to keep an eye on. One of the things that often comes up when I'm having these discussions about salmon with other fishermen is an argument which is very often presented with a lot of passion is we need um, a hatchery on our river. That's the reason that we don't have the fish that we used to have because there used to be a hatchery and there's always a big story around it and my grandfather is normally involved somewhere as well. Not my grandfather, their grandfather is normally involved somewhere as well and we need a hatchery and that would solve all the problems. There are some cases around the country where we've seen uh, rivers recovered as a result of implementing a hatchery that maybe even wasn't there to begin with. But talk to me about that discussion, Mark, because it's it can very often use up a lot of time uh, when there are other things that we should be talking about, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the simplest way to think about hatcheries is neither good or bad. It's just a tool in the toolbox mm-hmm. for, for the fishery manager. And um, it's like like any tool. Sometimes it's the right tool to use it. Sometimes it's the wrong tool. So take uh, the Conan or Kielder uh, on the Tyne, where they've put in um, a dam for other purposes. So for the Conan, it's for hydro uh, generation. For Kielder, it's for water supply. But they've cut off the spawning grounds or flooded the spawning grounds. So if you want a fishery, it's the only tool available to you to be able to... Because fish got nowhere to spawn. Because there's nowhere to spawn. So you need you need the hatchery to replicate what's been lost. And so they, they do that really well. But for other problems, it's not necessarily the right tool. So you mentioned uh, here on the North Esk uh, that you've got plenty of juveniles. That's certainly uh, my understanding, yeah. Yeah, so if you've got plenty of juveniles and that you can only get... They're, they're carrying capacity. There's a finite number that a yeah. river can support. So, yeah. You know, the, they can, the river can only hold so many. Um, putting more in is either... Could it be detrimental? Well, it could because you something's going to die. Cause if, you can only get, if you can only get, say, 20 fish in a certain area of river, if you then go and put another 20 fish in, um, those fish have a simple choice. They either... They either die, one of them's going to die, in which case it wasn't really effective. Um, and probably a waste of money. <laughs> yeah, and you so you pro- and you may well end up with less than twenty fish at the end. And I think that's some of the results that have been seen. Around. Yeah, and um, interesting. What do you find? So let's say if you look at areas of the river and certain places that I would imagine with good habitat are going to hold good numbers of juvenile fish, and then other places are going to be almost void of fish, largely due to the habitat. Has there been much work done trying to introduce fish to these 
other places or do you find that if the habitat's not there you introduce them to places that don't have many and yet you still get exactly the same thing they move to where the habitat's good and you've still got this uh competition yep so if the if the habitat's rubbish yeah um and you put a load of fish in there they're either going to move off or they're going to die and if they move off they're either going to compete with fish where there is good habitat Mm -hmm. or not that's not to say hatchery is good or bad and i think people get into this hatcheries are the answer to everything if they were the answer to everything We'd be swimming in fish because everyone would be doing it. And hatcheries are not a new thing, are they? I mean, hatcheries have been going since the turn of the century. Uh, been going even before way before that. that, I first started in when I was out in the Outer Hebrides. There were old spawning ponds and runs from Lord Dunmore uh, that are about 150, 160 years old. Oh, yeah. So it's not a new answer, <laughs> is it? It's not a new <laughs> answer. Yeah. So, so they've been trying, they, and they come they in and out. Then, do you think they just didn't understand? They just thought we want more fish. Let's breed more fish. That's exactly. But they had right. nothing to prove really whether it was working. There was shitloads yeah. of fish back then. So yeah, <laughs> I mean they didn't yeah. even have cars, so their no. their technology wasn't really. But up then to they they to kind of out. worked out because the yeah the, the, if you've got somebody on their ground, they go. That either works or it doesn't work. Yeah, um, I mean, let's face it. Before that, they were we were taking Scottish salmon and trout to the colonies, weren't we? we were how, taking, how, how the Falklands you know, get their sea yeah. trout? They took yeah. they took uh, Atlantic salmon four times to New Zealand, and it failed every time. Yeah. On a bit of a whim, they took a few brown trout from uh, Loch Leven. Yeah, bloody worked, and, that, and it worked. <laughs> you know, and they did exactly the same with uh, brown trout to Patagonia, uh, where there's very little fly life in the in the freshwater environment, mainly because it's so windy. Uh, and they go up to sea, and now you've got the best saltwater, uh, the best sea trout yeah. fishery yeah. in the world. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, it, it is amazing how they adapt. We've moved fish all around the world, haven't we? But they all, they will do what they, they can do in the environment that you exactly. present. Exactly, yeah. And if there's nothing for them to compete with, so if you introduce them and there's no there's no fish there already and there's nothing for them to compete with, they're going to thrive. Yeah. Like, it's almost like an invasive species. Yeah. So they'll, they'll thrive like that. But the um, people people need to understand and recognise where hatcheries are the right tool and also where they're the wrong tool because it's just this flat approach saying we need a big hatchery and if it's not working, we need a bigger one. Mm-hmm. Is you, you need to understand why you're using it. It's like, you know, I can't fix all the problems on my car with a hammer. I can fix some. <laughs> But not all. It depends how angry you are. I find <laughs> yeah. it With does give you a warm feeling afterwards <laughs> if you you know if you've managed to belt the living daylights out of the project. But it's um, uh, you can't fix everything with a hammer. I think one thing that uh, I get asked an awful lot on the river, and this hatchery thing comes up a lot, and you're kind of a little bit stuck as a as a ghillie or a fishing guy because you kind of you want to see your clients happy and you want to see them catching fish and if they're not they they generally want to start pointing the finger at something so you start having these debates an awful lot um and a lot of the time i find that um and this is nothing against uh mark at the ast or any part of the scientific industry but the transferring the data and the thoughts behind uh, the scientific research, I think historically you'd probably agree, Mark, they've been quite bad at getting that message across to the anglers. And so you have a fisherman that generally, as as, as his weeks have got worse and worse and worse, he's catching less and less fish and he's looking for an answer. Um, And so you naturally look to what do we all do? We go back to what we've done for years. Oh, well, we put more fish in the river. Um, And I think from there uh, I think I'll be right in saying that the scientific research going kind of 
against hatcheries is all about the mortality uh, and the mortality that you have of a wild fish. Um, I think correct is a return of wild fish is something like five percent. Well, after stripping. No, so if a wild fish, um, small, yeah, wild a completely small. wild smolt, oh, okay. you get about a 5% return rate. Yep. Um, and studies show on a hatchery fish, you get something more like 2%. It's about a quarter, yeah. Yep. And that's just because it hasn't gone through the natural process of exactly, survival. Exactly, survival of the fittest. Um, and so what you're doing is you're taking out a fish from the wild that would have had a 5%. You may get... More eggs and more fry because you've reared them up in an artificial environment. <laughs> so you may be able to release slightly more, but your percentages mm. have gone down. Yeah, okay. So are you any better off than you would have been in the first place? Now, like Mark says, if, if habitat is a problem, then absolutely, because you're not going to get that natural survival because there's not the habitat to, to provide them. So then you kind of haven't got a choice. Um, places in Ireland where there is no spawning at all, uh, then again, you haven't got, the habitat for them to do it themselves so you have to um but then you end up in this vicious circle and this is something i think they found and they've seen in north america quite a lot where you start a hatchery and and you see um you know you see small short-term benefits you see more fish coming back but as that percentage return rate is dropping down the hatchery numbers have to constantly go up just to remain at the same level yeah. because you're constantly reducing the uh return rate um, yeah, that's. Uh, I hadn't thought of it like that, but yeah, you got to consider all these fine details and the consequences to our action because we mustn't forget, and I think we very often do forget, and not just in in fishing, but nature will always do it best if it can. <laughs> Absolutely. So we are. We will never be able to do it as well as well as nature can do it because there's a reason that it's evolved like that exactly and just just sorry just to elaborate because we we have a lot of people a lot of people i'm who listen to this podcast will fish but i know that there are a a good number who also don't in terms of the hatcheries the way that it works is that they catch the fish at the back end of the season running up so it's wild fish in the rivers that are then lifted out stripped of the eggs and milt and then that's what goes into the hatchery because i think they probably they might some there might be one or two people who are confused that think that somehow they were farmed and then the i think that was done probably in the past wasn't it very much mistaken and also i think in the past fish were moved from one river elaborate on why that is a, a terrible idea fish fish salmon are famous for homing uh and over the years that allows them to specialize and understand that and fine-tune their bodies for that environment so that so you get the it is survival of the fittest and each river slightly different so you need slightly different characteristics to survive and thrive there the best because if you're not the best something else will come in and displace you it is survival of the fittest so fish home to a particular river they're at their fittest for that particular river if you move them to another river you will either they won't be as fit in which case they'll die or they'll be fitter than what's there in which case they'll replace what's there Mm -hmm. um and that has happened historically hasn't it yeah very much so but also you've got the law of unintended consequences as well so our, our, our friends in norway um moved fish um from the baltic over to the Atlantic, and along with their their hatchery origin fish, they brought along Gyrodactylus. Oh, yeah, of and there's been hosts of rivers that have had to be sterilised, which means everything killed 
um, and um, because of that's this a, parasite. That's scary. I mean, we, we you see it in in the fishing huts here. The information about the about the disease. Um, I didn't think it was something we were necessarily going to talk about today, but just I think it's important to emphasise just how important the uh, measures are if you're fishing abroad to biohazard control. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> control. Oh, yeah. Explain what would happen if, if we get it in a river here. Okay. What would be what would happen to your river, Mark? So if you got one one parasite, these are tiny little parasites, um, really small. Just see them with the naked eye. Um, but they're born pregnant. Okay, so you need one. Normally, for a species, you know, birds and bees, you need two. These things are born pregnant and can do several generations without having having to mate. So you can go from having one animal, short life cycle, and it can rapidly expand, and you get a population explosion of them, and you will lose, I think from memory well over 95% of your salmon uh, within a few years. Is it just salmon that it attacks? Yeah. Um, it's uh, different different species. Gyrodactylids uh, affect different species, but it's, I think it's predominantly salmon. And what does it do to them? Uh, it kills them. Very quickly? Uh, it's like death by a thousand pinpricks. Wow. Not a pleasant way to So the, the only way to solve it is to basically poison the river? Yeah, sterilise the river. Get rid of every fish. And there'll Keep be nothing it, left. I mean, in no fish. Wow. And that's kind nothing. of like your, your foot and mouth thing, isn't it? Yeah, if it you is, find yeah. that you've got it, you need to actually control that area, wipe that area out before it gets anywhere else. The other problem you've got is, uh, as we know, when salmon salmon do come back to our river, but salmon also go up other rivers. Yeah. You know, well, there's you always a get... small spillover. That's the nature's yeah. repopulation. Exactly. And so it could spread like wildfire very, very quickly. But also they mixed. I mean, the salmon stocks are they're they're mixed up and down the coastline I until do, they. Thankfully, Gyrodactylus yeah. is a freshwater species. Ah, okay. And, and you need to think of it like a goldfish. If you want to sterilise your kit, yep. think of it all the ways to kill a goldfish. So if you put your goldfish into salt water, it dies. If you put your goldfish into the freezer, it dies. If you put your goldfish into the airing cupboard for a day. It die. <laughs> Think of all the ways you can kill a goldfish. Now, kids are really good at killing goldfish. <laughs> so just ask the kids, Not how would you kill a goldfish? Yeah. But drying it, freezing it, putting it in salty water, or using a, a you know one of the a disinfectant like Vercon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Vercon's brilliant because it kills everything. I mean, because you never know. There's other diseases out yeah. there. But um, it could easily it could easily live in your, your felt soles that have stayed damp well, from Norway to here. If easily. you think about where you can, you know, if, if you're going to interact with a fish with gyrodactylus, one of the main chances is that you either catch one mm-hmm. or you stand on a dead one. Yeah. And felt soles. Felt soles and nets. Yeah, brilliant way for transporting it. Uh, neoprene waders stay damp for a long time um, it's it's quite unlikely that it would pass over here through fishermen that has to be biosecurity measures but my understanding was the the only transfer of it was moving actual fish uh with it but you have to be hot on this and actually i think it's something scotland could be a lot hotter on at the airports that's a good point actually if i haven't you, seen anything to do with it at the airport. there isn't if you go to iceland um, if you're trying to get your kit back into Iceland, um, you need to have a certificate that's been to say that it's been done here. All right. Okay. Or what, they a, charge by, you at the airport by a specialist. Here. By vet. Yeah. Oh, by wow. a vet. Really? Yeah. yeah. 
Wow, um, I didn't know that. Even I've done, I've sprayed, I've had Icelandic fishers come in t- with me. I've um, sprayed all the kit before they've gone back. I even signed them a piece of paper to say that I'd done it from a fishing manager on the river. Um, wasn't good enough. They still had to do it at the uh, at the airport as well. So they'll watch you do it at the airport? Absolutely. And usually they charge about £80 for the privilege as oh, well. Oh, wow. Um, in New Zealand, if you turn up in New Zealand with a felt sold wading boots, not coming into the country. Well, my, even my, my walking boots, when I just went now, I scrubbed them before I left. Um, I mean, that, it, was, it was a bit different, but they, they did take them off and they said, look, they look clean, but we're just going to, I don't know what they did. They probably dipped them and painted them with, you know, one of the disinfectants that they use, but they actually took my boots off me. Well, and, when and when I was working in Australia diving, because I could carry my wetsuit in, in and out in the country, they pulled the, that, the, of all the things, I was carrying a spear gun, uh, knives, all sorts of stuff on me. And the only thing that they were concerned about was my wetsuit boots and my, my wetsuit top. And, you know, they were like, where have you been? And luckily, I'd been working in Australia and they weren't that concerned about that. But if you'd been out the country, I think they would have either burnt it with fire or yeah, charged absolutely. you, like you said, 80 pounds for the, the privilege. The Australians are so hot on anything. that Yeah, it's... For, for us with gyrodactylus, it is a low risk of an angler bringing it in. But it is still... But can you imagine? Because it's complete game over time. I mean, there is... It is... Sterilise your river. Start again. And actually, that's probably where a hatchery would come in because they would take <laughs> um, fish away, keep the genetics going, keep yeah. the genetic lines, yeah. keep those fish clear of gyrodactylus. That's a scary thought. Yeah. But there, there is... Um, uh, there is there is a big strategy if gyrodactylus comes here. Well, first of all, that's... But it's to stop it. 60, are there 60 gillies just on the River Deer Lane? How many gillies are there in Scotland? That's a lot of people out of jobs. Yeah. Instantly. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and the revenue of people coming in to fish those rivers. But look at the cultural heritage. If you lose those gillies and you lose that way of life, the that skills whole would cultural disappear. side, mm. if you put, say, you can't fish for 10 years, either because you spent three or four years killing your river... And then another six years bringing it back. Ten years of not fishing a particular river. Hotels have gone and done something. might have closed. The gillies have gone off and done something else. Just the whole fabric goes. And Mm. that culture that's been with us for a long time, we lose it all. It's it's a very good point. And it's somewhat misunderstood. I've heard people say before, especially people who don't, uh, who maybe don't have any kind of vested interest in fishing. Well, you know, if you're if you're having an issue with uh, salmon stocks in a particular river, like the South Esk, for example, that compared to the North Esk has been suffering more with, with the populations in. Is it working right now? Yeah, you're all yeah. good. You're good. Uh, the populations, especially in recent years, um, returning from the sea, um, close the river. Don't, if it's a problem, don't fish it. But what a lot of people don't realize is if you don't have that vested interest in people wanting to come and fish it, who else is going to come and spend the money? Because people who walk the dogs along the river are not going to, to finance the river for the pleasure of, seeing, for, of funding fish that they're not even going to see. The only people who are funding that is the fishermen. Oh, the fishermen. Well, I, and it's I, so misunderstood that. I, yeah. clo- close the river to save the fish. I benefit it, from, it would from have, the, the fishermen every day from where I... I where I live, I walk the dog o- along the river and it is kept really nicely, nice access. And the only reason why it's like that is because of the fishermen. There's no other reason. That would be- within, within two years, because I see it because they maintain it really well, within two years it would all be overgrown. You wouldn't be walking your dog down there. I know that's one nice thing, but like I'm not putting anything into that river. 
myself, but it just shows you the, the little things like that. Absolutely, and this is this is a little point that I wanted to um, touch on. So um, we do quite a lot of fishing abroad. Um, and in an awful lot of countries abroad, you have this kind of state license thing where you buy your state license and off you go. Okay, so everything is managed by the government. Like an English rod license. Yeah, exactly. Although a lot of places you don't even have to buy a data. New Zealand, for example, you can go and fish any river you like. Pretty much North America, you can go and fish. You can, you can buy your license off you go. Same in Argentina, same in Chile. Um, and it is then not managed. Occasionally, somebody will put a lodge on a section of the river and they wouldn't manage that, that part of it. But generally, it is wild. And governments do not, they cannot stretch to manage a river um, that closely as it does in Scotland. And I think one of the things with um, that's unique about Scotland is generally estates, you know, most beats are between two and four miles long. And it's generally owned by an estate. Now, these estates kind of see it, the, the owners, it's um, it's right that they have the fishing, but they, they have to manage it. And they and they do, and they manage it to kind of within an inch of its life. You know, it, it's there's one guide put on that little section. Nowhere else in the world do you get a little three mile section of river that has an in house guide that looks after just that section. And so you, what you end up with is um, a river that is completely looked after. That the the banks are cut. Um, and I I kind of feel that imagine if Scotland was different and it went to. Um, Imagine it was public fishing for everyone. You mm. know. Well, no one, no one would maintain it. Absolute carnage, wouldn't mm. it? Well, we're also, uh, I think the other thing, uh, we're also a small country, but New Zealand's a small country, but the terrain makes it very difficult to access a lot of the places. So that's kind of a restriction yeah. and to people they, going. And, and also there's only four and a half million people. We have 65. But also they, they, don't, they don't have that, the access to land. You can't just walk across farmers' fields with rods. No, but all, all of, all of, the, all of the, the rivers have access along the banks yeah. from the roads. So you yeah. can still access the rivers. The hunting And then is, up the high water mark. Exactly. Um, but we... Yeah, we Cultural heritage, as you said, Mark, is incredibly important. And there are examples recently, and there's a country, and I can't remember which one it is, that um, in terms of hunting as part of their cultural heritage has just been protected. It's a country in Europe. But it is very important for the footprint of who you are as a country. I think you take you, – there's, there's there's two things there. I think there's um, – you need to maintain that cultural heritage and that identity. And they're doing a lot of this in Sweden. Everyone thinks in Sweden everyone's really connected to the land – that was fine until the iPad and tablets came along and computers and everything else. And the kids suddenly went, you know what? This is more interesting. And I don't have to leave the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> and it's cold out there. Um, the So they've had to spend a lot of time reconnecting people with the land, with their fishing. So if you go over to Sweden, you see um, a lot of effort going to make sure people get out and about in the country. They really don't take it for granted, especially fishing. Yeah, and it's um, it's all ages now, uh, males and females going out fishing, really enjoying themselves. But they've had to work hard at it to maintain it, because I think they 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 cottoned on, and you see it here. The biggest killer of of fish is probably apathy. If no one gives two hoots, then who's going to look after the fish? No, yeah. no one cares. Who's going to be concerned? Yeah. Who's going to be concerned? And who's uh, going to do the re- Who's going to do the research? Yeah. So you see it in the rivers that have lost their salmon. You know they're desperate to get them back. You look down in England, the money that's gone into the Thames mm. to get salmon back. The Mersey of all places. 
um, you know, I grew up around there and seeing what was pretty much an open sewer when I was a kid to now seeing video footage of salmon thriving in the headwaters of the Mersey is astonishing. I mean, it's... it's um, but they've had to work at it and it's because they care. And we, we just need to make sure that we don't take it's salmon for granted. angling bodies that have been pushing that, isn't it? Yeah. One of the other uh, kind of hot topics... Especially from the outside, uh, well, within as well, but particularly outside the fishing community, is the idea of catch and release, which is a little bit tied to well, if a, if a if a river's really struggling, maybe you shouldn't be fishing at all. Then there's the argument also: if you're catching and releasing a fish, you're you are impacting that fish in some way. You are reducing the chances that it will survive to go on and spawn. What do we know about catch and release, and why is it an important tool in a country like Scotland? I think you can kind of look at that um, kind of twofold, can you? If you're seeing a declining number of a species. Um, it would make complete sense to put it back. Okay. But if we look at it from another point of view, politically, we spent the last quite a few years buying out various netting rights around the country, putting pressures on to stop commercial fishing of wild Atlantic salmon. Um, Politically, can you be fighting those battles and trying to stop commercial fishing of them and you're killing them in the river? You've kind of lost that argument straight away there, haven't you? Um, so I think by by voluntary catch and release, I think my experience is most 90% of the fishermen are more than happy to, to put them back because you're seeing last year, now it's completely illegal to be in possession of a wild Atlantic salmon until the 1st of April. Yeah, some rivers in May on other rivers. And um, I mean, that's amazing. That's, that's absolutely amazing. That means... Government, and it's come from ICs, hasn't it, has actually turned around and said, we've noticed this decline and actually we're making it mandatory that absolutely nobody, whether in saltwater or freshwater, can kill wild Atlantic salmon up until then. I think, I think that's the key. It's At the moment, there's not enough fish coming back. So there's not enough fish to kill however we kill them, whether it's in in the nets or by the rods. So being able to reduce the number of fish that are killed and protect those survivors with all the problems that are happening out at sea or in fresh water you know the ones that come back are the survivors they're the ones that have got the right equipment the right genes to survive in our world today out of all the fish they're the ones we need for the future um so whilst we haven't got enough fish um to be able to take a harvest we really do need to protect them. I mean, I, I've obviously mulled over this in, in my mind a lot, and uh, people have asked me the question, and it amazes me actually how many how many fishermen if, who will partake in it because they like salmon fish actually couldn't give a general member of the public a good argument as to why catch and release is good. And I think it really goes back to what we were just saying five minutes ago, is that without a vested interest in the river, you wouldn't end up with the investment. People wouldn't care. You can't expect people to sit back for 10, 20 years putting money into a river and not fishing it. So it's all—it's not an ideal situation almost, catch and release, but it is the best tool that we have, I think, to keep an interest in the river, money coming in, and people who genuinely care about the long-term survival of a species 
bought into it essentially. I mean, I mean I that's think, my mindset on it. I think when the D went, I think the D was the first river to go 100% catch and release, wasn't it? Uh, the first major river. Um, I think you lost a certain amount of fishermen straight away. I think some uh, people just said no. To, yeah, fine. they were like, absolutely not. That's fine. They go to the spay that I think you can kill your second and your fourth, providing that it's a male fish. Uh, the tweed has something similar. So uh, I used to be on the Grimmister. We had a voluntary catch and release. It was totally up to the client. And we still ran at 95% release rate. Really? So, you know, you you lost some people straight away. But I think what we're finding now is when it first came in, we are going to, uh, we're going to introduce catch and release until we have a surplus that we can harvest. If we still had the same numbers of fish that we were catching back in the 60s and the 70s, you know, there's no reason why we couldn't start killing fish again. Um, if you look at the grass industry, they they harvest a surplus on a year-by-year basis, don't they? Um, but I think I don't think it will go back. I think we've seen a culture change, and I think that our current fishers now, that um, they don't want to kill them. Even it's people just, that have caught it's a strange it's a, it's a strange thing that isn't it because for me you know I, I love to fish we we both we both love to fish i grew up fishing before i probably a little bit before i was hunting but at heart i'm a hunter in every respect so i, I see fishing the same you you are hunting but you're with a hunting with a fishing rod yeah but when i go out and i'm hunting with a rifle or whatever other tool it is it, it is for the purpose of killing something so that i can put it in my freezer whereas i'm fishing and if I'm catch and release, it's purely for my pleasure. This is it's an got, interesting thing. It's isn't a removal it? of the hunting instinct. To mm. it. Whereas, you know, when I was a kid, I used to really love putting salmon and sea trout in the freezer yeah. <laughs> because it tastes so damn good. And, and it kind of completed the satisfaction of the event yeah. for me. And we we're kind of removing that aspect of it. It's not almost not hunting anymore. Which is it always a was bit of a dangerous way to go i mean if you look at if you're trying to you guys do a lot of protecting the uh the hunting industry um it does, got, yeah just trying to educate yeah if yeah. you've got if you've got kind of anti saying well why do you go and kill it you've always got the fi- uh field to table argument and if you're that's the easy for food yeah. Yeah. then that that's kind of foolproof isn't it you can't really argue with that and by going and catching release you've taken that away um and this is why I said to you, a lot of fishermen, if you ask them the question, they can't actually justify catch and release. And I find that frustrating because because of that. So somebody who doesn't like it, so well, you're only doing it for your own pleasure. You put a fish under a hell of a lot of stress. Yep. You put it back into the river. You've reduced its chances of survival. And a lot of fishermen can't then say, yeah, I know that, but for all the reasons that we just spent, you know, speaking about for the last 20 minutes. Yeah. A lot of people can't have that conversation because they haven't thought about it. And I find that frustrating. Now they can. Now they've listened now they to can, the Yeah, now they've yeah. Well, the podcast, it's, a, it's a difficult It's an important one, discussion it? to have, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We need to, you need to justify your actions. And I think it is, it absolutely is wholly justifiable. Um, but and know, people need to realise. And it's a means to an end. You know, we, we, need, we need to reverse this decline in salmon. We, is it possible, Mark? I Before think it is. I think I think we um, we have to understand out understand why uh, it's going wrong. Once we know that, we'll be able to answer that question fully. Am I optimistic? I am. Um, in the last ten, twelve years, we've seen periods of high abundance and low abundance uh, in salmon numbers. Um, the world has not fundamentally changed in that time, and um, you know it was only. Eight years ago, the I think 
the Scotland had a high, one of its highest catches, r- recorded rod catches. Um, it wasn't the highest abundance of fish. Um, but Is that fishing pressure, though? Fishing, that, 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 fishing pressure and also the nets had come off. Okay, so you a had a... the nets, so there was, there was more around. Um, but we, we need to understand what the problem is. And then, then we need to fix it because in this day and age, we should be able to look after the salmon. They really are the canary of the sea. If there's something going wrong with salmon, it means there's something going wrong with our rivers, fundamentally wrong with our rivers and how we're managing them. And there's something fundamentally wrong with our stewardship of the seas. Because if we want to have a long-term future on this planet, we need to look after our rivers because we're drinking all that water and we need to look after the seas because that's where a hell of a lot of our food's coming from. It's interesting because we're talking about salmon, uh, but and obviously they're gauging them as a health of the rivers and the oceans. But you think if we've got a problem with them, what other problems? We know of many other problems, but what problems don't we know about that's happening? Absolutely. What are the known unknowns? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And that will probably link to what the salmon are feeding on, yeah. which is what other stuff will be feeding on. Other things too. are feeding yeah. on. They've, as well. they've already seen the migration of, of whales up to Norway in feeding grounds they've never ever seen them before. And they reckon that's due to uh, currents and also the, the what they're they're feeding on is moving because of the ocean temperatures. So, you know, lots of little things going on. And if you look at decline of salmon, if you you don't have to go back that far when Spain had an awful lot of salmon. You know, Germany, France were catching salmon, um, and there are still salmon there, but in much lower numbers. So you can kind of see that food going further, further north, and the fish having to travel further and further for it. Do you think the, there's a risk with the decline and state of particularly salmon fishing across the country that new generations, which would have been enthused by it 30 years ago, I'm still enthused by it, although I'm seeing less fish than I saw when I was a kid, but people who are you know, 12, 13 now, you know, just as I was starting to really venture off on my own and go salmon fishing, are just not going to be doing it anymore because... The bottom line is you need the tug. You the do. The tug's the drug. Absolutely. Uh, and you do need that to be invested in days and days on end, fishing little pockets of a river in the hope that you're going to connect with something silver. I think the the mentality changes. So I think the and, – and we've seen it when there were a lot of salmon about, you know, it was just another one for the pot. Mm. Uh, now, and, and you see it, the salmon is kind of – it's put on a pedestal. You think the it's prize even becomes more. So greater. It's, it's more of a special moment now. It is absolutely, uh, and I think, and with the catch and release, I think that's why people are so happy to put them back. I'm not saying everybody is, but you're seeing more and more that they are because, you know, especially this year. I mean, this year, um, especially year with you. the drought in the summer. I mean, it was a long year, and you started each week with one goal, and that was to catch each fisherman one fish for the week. You know, you weren't trying to catch five or ten or have a good week of thirty. You know, just trying to catch one. And the fishermen knew that the conditions were everything. You know, the the conditions were just so poor. We knew it was going to be difficult, but they were happy in the knowledge that they're going to have to work really, really hard just to catch that one salmon that week. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and that's kind of where it's become now with the um, with the youngsters. One thing is what's happening with some happened with salmon fishing is the kind of demo, demographics and the booking, uh, how people are booking fishing has changed a lot. If you don't got to go back that far when it was very much the land of gentry and you were invited to fish a beat for a week, 
Um, and that's very much changed. Uh, people are, you still get your weekly lets, people coming up for their, their week salmon fishing every year. You still get that. But that's getting fewer and fewer. And you're getting more local people uh, sitting watching uh, Fishpal. And if anybody doesn't know about Fishpal, Fishpal is a website that shows you river heights, river catches, fishing availability, and you can book a day's fishing through that. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant for salmon fishing and actually absolutely brilliant to be able to make the rivers more accessible and be able to let people come in and fish them but that has a knock-on effect as well you're having people that are sat back watching the catches that's just what i was going to say you know you. watching the conditions <laughs> oh there's not much water there's not much getting especially caught. if you're local it's yeah, easy exactly whereas and historically you would have just said okay well i'm taking these two days off i'm just going to book it you and have your week you you, you yeah or, or you have your week and yeah. you fish it irrespective yeah. whereas do you think it's resulted in quite a lot of days not being taken, especially in a year like it's this. It's a complete, yeah, it's a complete double-edged sword. Your your locals, I mean, if you look at some rivers that are still, they don't, um, they don't publish their catches. Okay. Um, you know, at the end of the year they do, but yeah, you can't but see them the season, on a, on a yeah. seasonal <laughs> basis. And their argument is, why does everybody need to know? My my clients turn up for the week, they come for the same week every And they're coming to and, enjoy it. Yeah, and they're coming to enjoy it. Um, I like, I like fish pal. Uh, from for two reasons, I like it from a fisherman's point of view, and I and I like it to get new people into the sport. It's a complete double edged sword. If because of no, the access it allows. Absolutely, yeah. if there's if there's no fish getting caught, nobody's booking fishing, so there's nobody fishing, so there's no fish getting caught, and then you get into this sort of awkward spiral. Um, but what it does allow is so we bring a lot of people into the sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. which historically would have been a logistical nightmare. If they don't know anybody that currently has a week's fishing, then how do they get onto the river? They would have had to know what estate to get into. They would yeah. have had to usually borrow kit or, or buy kit uh, before they even know what they're doing. Now, we can take them for a lesson, give them the kit, book them one or two days on the river, and they've just had their first kind of experience on the river then they can decide if they want to get into it. And what we're finding is, actually, they're not expecting to catch a fish on that first day. Well, they're, they're still looking, thinking about how to cast getting into and it and reading the water. Are, are you seeing uh, yourself some youngsters coming through, quite a few youngsters? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't say... Um, so our kind of target market, you have to understand with salmon fishing, you're spending a minimum of 50 quid a day, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. For a day's fishing. So... I would say uh, we get a lot of people between 25 and 40. Doing it for the first time? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. brilliant. And then we get, no, probably change that 25 to 35. Then you have the bracket when you've got kids yeah. uh, and families and you physically don't have the time and you tend to lose quite a lot of people then. And then the next kind of market that comes to us are the guys that are just maybe not retired but just kind of calming down a little bit at work, got a little bit of money behind them, looking for a hobby. They already play golf. Um, Bit that hobby, for, get a real yeah, hobby. Exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, they're, and they're looking for something as well. Um, and the great thing with Fishpal is it's made this accessible for them. Once they've once they've committed to buy some kit and some waders, they can look at they can they can, and they can go. Click Whereas historically you can yeah. never do that. Well, I'm I'm pleased. I'm, I'm I'm pleased that that is you know that is what you're seeing. That it's uh, you haven't seen a decline in, in people wanting to fish but the river. You have to work at it. You really do. And I think this I was mentioning Sweden earlier. Yeah. Where they've gone. You know, we've just got. We've just got. It's an aging population. It's male. They're all on the wrong side of uh, north of 60, yeah. 70. Mm. And 
that's not a good demographic for getting youngsters coming through. You need you need a good balance of all the ages coming through the sport. Do we have they, a? Is there a countrywide? Uh, is there anything that people can get behind countrywide to encourage youngsters? And I mean, it's very good doing it river by river by river, but it's really a, a countrywide issue that we can. Hear. Is there anything in place in Scotland right now? I think the fishery boards and trusts are are doing some work on that and you've got different people feeding into it we do lots of things with scout groups okay. um, the river board does I can't remember how many uh, but quite a lot of school groups generally trout fishing just to get them outdoors and get them into it it's a, it's a good place to start absolutely, trout, trout absolutely. I love trout like I, I think it's brilliant <laughs> yeah. um, no that's absolutely great and you know you're never looking you're not going to get a summer fisherman out of it child straight away but you've got to set that seed early um, lads and dads days the few beats have done lads at park I think did a lads and dads day this year uh, just opened up the whole beat for lads and dads which That's was great. great yeah absolutely um, but I think Mark's right you know Al and I may see uh, a slightly younger demographic with the nature of our kind of yeah, the way that you presence and the way that we run our business um, I'd say the demographic on Fishpal is probably slightly older than that and you do have to keep you do have to keep working at it on a national level it's it's hard because it, even in the in the hunting and shooting world there is it is a concern it's a concern for me i don't if i th- even think at my age and the people i went to school with i think i can think of one person one what? person who shoots uh, and yeah. maybe another two people who fish that's it and my whole year group of, fish, uh, of school now that's it and do you think that's something that um has changed or do you think it's that kind of I think with the fishing we say we've always we're always missing that younger generation but I kind of feel like we've probably always been missing that younger generation and you have this kind of you historically you went with your parents on your family trip to the river you then have that middle section of building a family and work life and then you kind of come back to it so I think every generation has said we're missing the younger generation of people maybe I'm not sure I, I always felt it was normal to go you know, I, I, well, I knew I was was not normal. <laughs> yeah, going, and you went yourself, and I just went myself, and I was fishing all the time. And I don't think I fished with anybody from school. I fished with my cousin; mm. he was my big fishing buddy who went to New Zealand because there were more trout there. <laughs> um, but that was it. But growing up in an area of course fish, it was you know you went out fishing with your mates from school. Uh, you you went out fishing. You view going on um, going out with cup on a camp for scouts or cubs. At least one of those days would be out fishing. fishing. Mm. And it it was the norm, and it was you know it was the bloke down the road that gave gave you a lift to take you fishing. Well, people don't let you do that to your kids. No, 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 no. down the road. It's you know, sad. It is sad. But don't. so there's that that what used to happen has stopped, and then it it, it needs to be a bit more organised to replace it. Hmm. Well, yeah. That, I mean, it is something which I think everybody listening, especially if you fish, maybe need to think about trying to take out somebody new for the season. Yeah. Well, the season's just finishing now, but next year, take out somebody new for the season who uh, you think might be interested because it's even if it, even if it's just for the fascination of buying rods, reels, and tying flies, <laughs> <laughs> keeps the industry going. Um, something I missed uh, to bring up before when we were having the the very serious debate about our, our missing fish was particularly our west coast and salmon farms. It's been in the media a lot in the last few months, so it would be very remiss of me not to not to bring it up. M- Mark, what do you see as the the big issue over salmon farms? on the West Coast and how that's connected to our wild stocks. Um, there's a lot of politics there, I know, but 
uh, see if we can kind of mull our way around it. Yeah, the big issue is sea lice. Um, for those that don't know, sea lice is um, it's a naturally occurring um, parasite. It's like a flea or a tick. It's, it's not like a flea or a tick, but it, you know, it lives on the skin of the fish. And the, you get them on wild fish, have done, uh, always have had uh, sea lice on them. Um, the problems occur is when sea lice go from wild fish onto farm fish. And because of the number of salmon in a fish cage, in a, in a, in a, on a fish farm, are huge. You know, you can have yeah, yeah, no, 2,000 tons of fish in an area. Um, those sea lice can multiply rapidly. And what's gone from being uh, background level, natural, natural, naturally occurring background level, you can get these huge blooms of sea lice, which then go and reinfect um, wild fish. Now the farmers can treat to varying degrees of success on their on their uh, fish farms. What we can't do is treat the wild fish. So the problems occur is when the young fish, the smolts, go to sea, whether the salmon or sea trout, they get they pick up the lice that are free swimming. Uh, in the coastal waters get infected. Sea trout tend to come back after they've had an infection of them, come back to fresh water and either die or lose a summer's growth. And growth is everything because you need to survive over the winters. Salmon, we're not sure what happens. They don't show that same behaviour. We think they probably die at sea. What we've seen this year uh, on some of the rivers on the islands is um, fish with the low water conditions uh, adult salmon coming back and really suffering with lice burdens in the hundreds, which really? is just horrendous. And they've seen similar um, numbers elsewhere. And it's 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 a great cause for concern. Hmm. And um, uh, this year, I think, has been particularly bad because of the hot weather for lice as well. The sea's not been particularly warm. The rivers have been particularly R- warm, and r- fish haven't been able to get into the rivers. So they've been sat up. Yeah, I mean, just yeah, so they're stuck so, in the salt water yeah. where they can't get rid of them. But you know what? If we um, we need we need to look at regulation of aquaculture. Um, you know, actually, we probably need the consumers uh, when they're looking at salmon in the supermarket to think about where did that fish come from? How was it looked after? And how in was it impacting way, its environment? Yeah, so in the same way that we've got standards for lamb and, you know, the, 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 the lamb and beef industries, let's, let's have, the, have those standards there for the aquaculture industry. Um, because I think the consumer should be able to ask for that. And the, the Atlantic Sound Trust, we, we think um, the best way to deal with this is is separate the activities. Yeah, there's always no, I agree. there is a demand for people to eat salmon as a healthy source of it, protein. It's evident. Yeah, <laughs> they, they they want that. Otherwise, they they wouldn't grow it if they couldn't sell it. Yeah. So there's a demand out there. So and and it's it's an employer on the west coast where it, it's it's a tough economic climate out there. So all of that's understood. But actually, farming in cages, open cages to the sea, is really an outmoded, dated prehistoric it's, it's, it's way insane. of farming it's insane yeah. when you start to understand the consequences of doing it that way uh, absolutely and, but not just not just for the wild fish for the yeah. farming it's, in terms of treating it and using reduced in terms of cost for chemicals for treating yeah, you're continually opening open to yeah. the environment for and disease and so everything else the best way to farm you know if um, is in a closed containment system 
Which they do in some places in Norway. Some parts of the world they do it. In Iceland they do it. I saw some videos of footage in Iceland where they were able to do... They have farmed closed containment systems in Scotland, in Ormsbury, for years and years and years. I didn't know that. And um, they do it as broodstock, or historically did it as broodstock. And so the technology's there. So there just needs to be the will and it, to get it, up and go to is do it. The co- it's, is it the, it's the capital costs of of setting it up. Is that what's is that what the barrier is for these companies doing it, or is it? I mean, they well, can I mean, within their, some, their, if they're working them, within the regulations. Some of them have right the now. money to do it. Some of them. I think they have the money. I think um, I have sort of chat was fishing with me um, a few weeks ago that actually makes some of the equipment for the salmon farms, um, and. He was saying demand is growing so quickly that they're going at 110 mile an hour just to keep up with demand. Huh. Um, but actually, and he's got very much kind of love-hate relationship with the business because that's his livelihood. livelihood yeah. uh, and likewise, he's a fisherman as well. Um, it will come. I think it will come. But, but I think the pressures quick, need to, to be kept on to make sure I, it comes I think there's, there's two things. You've got regulation here. But regulation would fix it overnight. Well, yeah. actually, I think there's, or mu- not quite I think there's a but... much more powerful tool than a regulator because the regulators um they can't be everywhere at all times and the most powerful thing out there are consumers yeah. Yeah. and where they buy so if the supermarkets say we need this to be by close containment we think that way you can lower your impact on the environment you can have more control over the product you're giving us um that way the farmers will go the farmers will switch well, they'll they'll want that little Overnight. logo, won't they? Like like rod caught uh, rod caught tuna. Yeah, yeah. They'll the, want that. Well, look look at the salmon. story of tuna. Yeah, I mean, it didn't take many years when all that hoo ha was going, and now everybody looks for the dolphin friendly sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and the rod little rod symbol yeah. and yeah. eggs, where yeah. you've got where you had battery cage eggs, which is you know there's um, like it used to be five four. Oh, I used to work on a chicken farm, and uh, when I first started, this is when I was very young. I think there used to be three in a cage, and then the following year, more regulation. Now it's two in a cage, and then after that, it was. But yeah. people didn't want it so, as well. No, no, it was the consumer, yeah. consumer that and the supermarkets that said, "We we want we want these welfare standards. We want to go from a battery cage to a free range egg, which had, with a higher capital cost, a higher running. But cost, we'll pay it. But we'll pay it. We understand that. That's what we want as consumers. And I think there needs to be a similar debate and looking at the pros and cons to bring that on for the agriculture industry. Now, it's not straightforward, made it out to be quite simplistic, but we need to encourage them either through regulation um, or through consumers asking, how's that fish been grown? To what standards has that fish been grown? And what impacts has that had on the surrounding wildlife? And if we can get that, the industry, they're in a young, fairly young industry. You know, they're only 40, 50 years old in Scotland. They will adapt. They're, they can be quite dynamic when they want to be and they will move over to close containment very, very quickly if the market demands it. If it if it wasn't a fish, and it was another animal that wasn't in the water, on land, it would have been changed by now because of, I'm, it, I'm it, sure it if, when you actually yeah. get your head around the cages, uh, uh, well, we've seen them, I've seen them firsthand, and you look at actually how there, how many there are in there. It's quite horrific, actually, when you, as a consumer, you actually think about what what your food is because you wouldn't. Well, that's almost a different discussion. No, that's I almost know. like the that's almost like the but, the but animal my, welfare of the fish. But my point being is that as a consumer, people buying fish, 
you need to think more about it because most people think nowadays, especially when you're buying some beef and it's probably horse and stuff like that <laughs> from the shop, most people are thinking a little bit more about what's going into their food, but I don't think they care quite as much about fish because it's cold and wet. Cold and wet. Yep. So people just need to care a little bit And if bit anybody more. wants to know, if they look online at the moment uh, and just search sort of salmon farming or I think Corin Smith's yeah, uh, website is very good, look at some of the pictures. And that will be enough to put you I'll off you what, we'll put eating you off wild salmon, uh, farmed salmon, straight away. I, I um, think I think that there is the the extreme end, and I, where you do see the horrific images. And I think there, obviously, there is parts of the farming salmon industry that are probably doing some pretty good stuff, especially with the closed containment, where you go, actually, this is a resource that. Um, we can use and feed the world with, but yep. it's just getting it. It's just getting it. It's getting it right. Getting, getting it right. And you know the argument, especially for employment on the west coast, you can't. You know, it can't be the argument of well, we need the jobs, so anything goes, kind of thing. But but, but, it, but it can't st- be the reverse. You, either, you yeah. still have to take into account that that is important for people Absolutely. to have these jobs. And yeah. and in some cases, if it wasn't there, there would be no population of people in no. certain areas. So, and there would be no population of wild salmon. The biggest thing that salmon farming did was took the pressure off the wild Atlantic yeah. salmon. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah, yeah. For, yeah. for the, catching the wild world. Fish, wants yeah. still, the world still demands to eat salmon, didn't they? Um, and so it has to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, one of the, when you read the, the like the headline grabbing stuff on social, I think one of the misperceptions is that there is a drive to ban salmon farming. I think that's uh, it's uh, it's not really the case, and I, th- I don't think that's what most people are driving for, though that's actually what it kind of appears when you look at Facebook and social media. It is just doing it better, yeah. doing a better doing job better. at farming, yeah. taking into account the environment, I mean, and just to emphasize the impacts that some of the salmon farms have had on the West Coast and why I brought up the question in the first place. The one that we know quite well because we made a film on is uh, Loch Marie. Which it is, it's pretty much undeniable that the that fish farm being in place um, in the in Loch U is a major factor in the decline of what was one of the world's biggest and best sea trout fisheries, uh, and there are a lot, plenty of other examples like that up and down the west coast. So it ha- has had a massively detrimental impact on that local area. Yes, there's employment from the fish farm there, but in that particular instance, I think there's been a vast amount of employment lost. I couldn't believe it when I was speaking to one of the... He's basically the last gilly left there. Yeah. There's like 20, 30 people yeah. employed. It's not even a very big system. Part of the hotel and everything. The yeah. hotel yeah. is... And I if was you look sad. at the money incoming, so the farming might, might employ people on the farm... But if you imagine what it used to be when you had 10 fishermen coming every day with all the guides and all the hotels and yeah, food, food suppliers yeah, yeah. and the knock-on effect. I think with Loch, Loch Marie particularly because it's easy to look at that because we we did quite a lot of work there. The the fishing angling industry uh, made the salmon the part the look like nothing compared to – because there were so many more people. I think, I think one of the keys – one of the key areas we've got to get to is um, – being able to have faith uh, in the industry. And we've got the regulation and it can be quite difficult to get all of the information and really understand what's truly happening there. Mm. But in the same, there was an initiative um, good few years ago in the Marine Stewardship Council on what was sustainable fish. So we were talking about cod earlier. You know, Are your cod sustainable? And if you see all the chefs 
uh, you know, any cookery program, you know, please see the list of MSC sustainable fish yeah, that yeah, are yeah. there. And it's on after every program. And people know that if they want environmentally friendly fish, look for the MSC logo on there. I think where we need to get to is where we can have an agriculture stewardship council so that we can all have faith and it's all done in the open, transparent way that those fish were produced well and sustainably and there's the evidence to back it up. Yeah. And to have that with the uh, an ASC label would just be a massive step forward for us all, being able to say, yeah, yeah, that's that's the way ahead. Um, we can have faith in that product. And again, it's part of consumers understanding about it, agriculture industry understanding about it, and wild fishery interests like ourselves understanding it and having rational discussions about this. Mm. I think unlike we were using the the battery chicken example and how that's changed unlike that what needs to be done in the agriculture side needs to happen faster because the consequences are far greater that was uh an animal welfare issue that was artificial whereas the impacts of what's happening in terms of the aquaculture is happening to wild fish stocks and a lot of stuff that we can't control on top of all the issues well, that exactly. we spent the previous hour exactly. talking about yeah. on a fish farm there is yeah. not a farm gate because it's open pen fishing so whatever's in the environment comes into your farm whatever's in your farm goes back out into the environment because it's op- it's open pen fishing hence why we need close containment because then you can have the equivalent of a farm gate you can have it yeah, separated yeah, yeah. and it's a different and environment it's a, a different barrier. controlled environment and if they don't get the problems from the wild fish bringing in any contagions any parasites yeah. anything like that and vice versa the, the, the thing is we're talking about it but it's as if, like, well, they need to do it soon. But the technology, they, but like it's you said, there. it's already there. They just need to, to do it. They and, need and, 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 the driver. The driver, yeah. They need the carrot. Yeah. The carrot needs to be and there. The driver are, you know, you need to engage, not the fish farmers, because I, I, from all the fish farmers I know, one or two exceptions, but they, they mean really well. And they, they care passionately about their fish and they try and do their best job. It's the bean counters. Yeah, and it's those people that we need to yeah to get on side to because um, they sign yeah, they're the guys problem. who are signing the checks to for the capital Absolutely. investment, and I think yeah. you get such a domino effect. I think once one commits to it on yeah. a large enough scale, the problem yeah. is it has to be on a large enough scale to compete with everybody else that's doing those open cages because your your capital is you know you're going to have to put so much money into uh, to the capital value of it to begin with and then your running costs the running costs should be lower they from should my be lower there's going to be a little bit of time until they just you, get, until it you right. get back yeah but once one of them goes that way i think everybody will go that way like free range eggs you pay a slight premium yeah yeah but uh, everyone's willing to do uh, it I some think good analogies there most people wouldn't even notice if it, if it increased a little bit no. Um, that there's if it was a closed containment and increased by a little bit, most people wouldn't even know because most people couldn't even tell you what the going price for salmon, a is. kilo of salmon is. Yeah, no, most people couldn't. So it wouldn't upset them because they don't know. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of issues there and a lot of things that we all need to be concerned about and try and understand. I think that you know that's the care we need to care enough to try and understand and then act. I mean, I may I make a point of never buying salmon to eat. I never order it in a restaurant. I always normally ask the cheeky question, where's your, where's your salmon from? 
And at the very least, I expect them to know which fish farm it's come from, and they never can. I don't think I've ever asked the question they've been able to tell me where it is. And do you occasionally see the sign Wild Atlantic Salmon? Oh, really? How often do you see that, though? Not very, very often Not, not anymore, anymore, but you anymore. used to see it a years lot, ago, you used to see Which, it, of yeah. course, you can't sell Wild yeah. Atlantic Salmon. Uh, um, but yeah, yeah, you used to see that, but I think people have obviously been picked up on it. But, so apparently now on your, on your packaged salmon... Uh, I'm not sure if it's every company, but most companies that do it, you can actually see the name of the fish farm that's come you from. You can now. It's, it's getting that way. But, but I've th- seen it on the a thing few. Is if, if more people start doing things like that, questioning, as a restaurant's questioning, where's this come from? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it's okay. I, I, don't, I don't want it because... I because know, you because, can't tell me. You, yeah. you can't tell me. Then they'll start clicking on that there's, there's evidently a problem here and people need more information about where their food is. So next time you're in the supermarket, ask them at the counter if they know exactly where their salmon has come from. I would like to think the supermarket would know. I'd like to think they would. was it sustainably sourced? Is there a a list that exists of uh, fish farms that you'd be happy to say it's fine to eat fish from? I think when we get the Aquatic Aquaculture Stewardship Council standards up and running and we get farms signing up to that, that that to me that's where someone's come in and said... Because I'd love that. I, yeah. I'd love there to me to be able to look on a list and say, okay, these are the dozen farms, and me to be able to go into the shop and happily they, and they, feel good they, about they it. They already have that, but there's issues with with the RSPCA assured. Well, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that yeah. came out about the RSPCA it, assured exactly. stuff. Well, it was public in the newspaper. No, it's, yeah. it's public. Uh, but... Uh, I don't think I would buy from anyone because I don't think they. Could. Well, this is the thing. I don't. Yeah, I don't have. Fa- I currently have faith don't have that. faith in the system to know that yes, that fish farm is is doing a good job. I feel good about giving you my money to to eat that salmon. But that's that's again where you know without trying to labour a point where the Marine Stewardship Council have been brilliant because we don't need to know the ins and outs uh, of their labelling. We just we have. Um, over the years got faith in this system yeah, we do. and yeah. people test the system and if something's not found to be sustainable it's removed they've got no qualms about removing it if the standards aren't being met so it means that the consumer can have faith in the system uh, which is surely lacking at the moment yeah. <laughs> and we, we need to be able to get there to uh, to just uh, as a kind of closing closing point, I just uh, something that I, I wanted to bring up and just to change the subject slightly. Uh, we haven't really seen any pink salmon this year, but last year we saw lots. What what do you think, Mark? What's happening? What's happening there? What are we going to see? What's your prediction for next year? Because I know next year is kind of going to be the big teller as to. It is. You seem to be um, when we've seen these. These were introduced into the White Sea in Russia uh, in the Soviet area, um, and they brought in. Odd, po- odd year populations and even year populations and although they're the same species they don't really mix that much that so I didn't it's know a that's fixed, it's a fixed wow. lifestyle okay. that the fish so they hatch spend a little bit of time in fresh water not much they go to sea as really their smolts are what we'd call fry yeah and they, they go off to sea and, and they come back um and, you know, people in certain parts of the world can set their calendars by when the fish come back. It's not like it's, you know, it's summer, fish will come back. It's, no, it's the 13th of July. Oh, ah, there, there, there they are. Um, so, yeah. they, but it's, wow. it's the, we have the odd year population dominant here. Okay. And that's what we had last year. Um, we will, you know, if they're going to come back, we'll see them next year as if it's the odd year population. Um, the even year populations are present in Norway and have been colonising as well separately and um, they're perhaps a cycle or two generation or two behind 
uh, the odd year population. But um, do you think they're here to stay? I don't know. If you if you read the books, then they they shouldn't have come here. But they've been they've been here. They've you been have first record since the nineteen sixties. First one was seen on the D in the nineteen sixties, um, which was an even year. Huh. Yeah. Um, but there's been strays, and then. Last year, there was a phenomenal... It was event. crazy, yeah. And, <laughs> and it was right across the Atlantic. So something happened to promote them. And they're really good at colonising fish, uh, colonising areas. And if you know, if you read the textbooks, they shouldn't be here. You know, it's it's, it's not the right temperature regime for them. And they'll, um, so they won't spawn. Well, but they did spawn. They did but spawn. they did spawn. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And then the eggs shouldn't develop. And they did. Well, they did develop. <laughs> um, and then they shouldn't hatch. Well, they did hatch and they shouldn't smolt. Oh, they did. And so, they, you know, it's nature's the, the amazing. People, people are advising on this have obviously not watched Jurassic Park, <laughs> where life will get away. And what pink salmon are famed for is colonising new areas. They're one of the, one of the world's greatest colonizers so um so they in the long are the term guarantees they probably will be here then in the long we term. don't know um we don't know. there's uh new sport you, new sport for you will? well you know it's interesting i was um you look at it from two points of view don't you you look at it from we want to come to scotland to catch atlantic salmon uh you don't want to catch pink salmon i was in russia last year and there was a hell of a lot of them um and the slightly awkward thing is they they die after spawning mm. straight away. So then you've got the riverbanks, which the rush, the wilderness of Russia is kind of geared up for because it's bears to eat them and all sorts. Yeah. In uh, Aberdeenshire, your dogs eating them. <laughs> you know, and they are and they are rotting on the banks. You, yeah, yeah you see them in British Columbia and Alaska and things. Yeah. But again, you've, it's a big wild area with bears and things. To, and we're just not geared up for it. Um, Maybe a few bears on your river system will... That's well, what you're missing? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you sort of took away from it a little bit. You're wading through dead fish to get to, to the get, river. To get to uh, the river. And this was in Russia, yeah. yeah. To get to where the pool is, you know. So yeah. there's a hell of a lot of them. I hadn't thought of it that way, yeah. uh, On the other hand, it's another species to catch. Well, they shouldn't affect the Atlantic salmon there's too a little, much. There's a bit of an it. interaction. They're, a bit of, they're, the, they're the Jack Russell of the fisheries world because they're small. Yeah. Like a Jack Russell. Yeah, they, well, they only go they to have, five, six pounds yeah, max. Yeah. They have com- an attitude like a Jack Russell. Normally, you know, you get, when you get a salmon in the net, it's like, mm, okay, that's me. I'm, I'm over yeah. and done with Please pink salmon is like, <laughs> come on then. I know you're six foot tall, but I'm going to have you. <laughs> I've and, never caught one. And they are, so that they, they're, they're quite, they are like the Jack Russell, but they do displace, one of the facts that we do know about them is they do displace autumn running uh, Atlantics, they just see them off like a Jack Russell with a Labrador. Okay. In terms yeah. of sitting in the pools. Yeah. And um, so that's, that's a pain. And w- w- last year, when I asked the kid is what they wanted, they thought, that's oh, another fish to catch. And then they turned up and it was, help us get rid of them, please. We don't want them here. Because whilst they're lovely fish to eat when they're in this fresh off the sea, very, very quickly, they turn, they turn into these in really curried monkey fish yeah, that, you don't want to eat. Uh, that has just got attitude and is full of teeth. Um, and you foul hook them in the hump. Oh, you do? fly swinging around, you foul hook them in the hump huh. all the time. Um, and we actually found that we, we felt like it was quite high water when we were out there and where we thought we should have been finding Atlantics on the crease of the currents and things like that, they weren't because that's where all the pinks were. And so you're having to try and catch Did them. Did you pick up quite a few last year? Yeah. Yeah. Not in not in Scotland. This, not is, Scotland. In, this, this is, is this is in, in Russia. In Russia but. Um, but yeah, they end up being becoming a little bit of a 
Oh, another one of them. Another. Rotten, dying fish. Jeffrey's just trying to work out what do we know about them and are they going to be part of the fixtures and fittings? Uh, if they are, how are we going to deal with them? What are going to be the impacts? Because like any of these invasive, spe- invasive species, it's best to catch it in the bud. You know, the person who first saw giant hogweed <laughs> when it started colonising riverbanks should have gone, we need to nail that now. Or the first squirrels that got out, or the first mink that yeah, got it's out. It's easy at the beginning. Yeah, really easy at the beginning. So let's see if it can be dealt with now, because if it's going to have a detrimental impact, and when you think about all the invasive species, invasive species, when they come to a country, always cause a problem. They're, I can't think of anything that has been beneficial yet that's come in as an invasive species. I think I best leave that as an open challenge. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was busy trying to Because I can see it. people thinking here, and I can't think... I've not still not been able to think of any. Talking of invasive species, um, crayfish, how much of an issue are they, and are we ever going to get rid of them? American signal crayfish, obviously. Um, best thing is, don't have them. Don't, don't you know have surveillance to make sure they're not coming into your waters. You if want regular them, monitoring to try and find Regular out. monitoring, make sure you've not got them. Because if you get them, if you see the first signs of them, get in there hard and try and deal with them. But it is an absolute nightmare. And what's the, the, the direct consequences of having them in your river? If you don't have native crayfish, which a lot of them... Uh, burrowing into riverbanks uh, and predation on fry. So that, again, could hammer the salmon. Yeah. Back to salmon again. Yeah, but apparently they taste quite good. I don't know. I've, I've eaten big that's what, I think that's what they were introduced for, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah. Originally, for food. I once caught one on the fly. A crayfish? Yeah. yeah. On a bloodworm. And it had slipped onto it. It wouldn't let go, just like your Jack Russells. They're like, so just holding with his claws. Just holding on with his claws. And then flicked him off on the bank. And instead of running back into the water, you know how a crab kind of comes at you with the claws? <laughs> Come at me with his claws. I mean, that, it was amazing. Where was that? <laughs> this was on a trout fishery in oh, England. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually I've not seen them myself, but I know they've got them down in Cumbria, yeah. don't they? They're big. Mm. You know, they're sort of. You're within ten miles of them here. Uh, I've, just not, I've, not, I've, not, I've not seen them though. Yeah, no, no, they yeah. are. They are. They. I believe they're in some of the waters around here, yeah. which is, and it's a problem. And uh, but are you allowed to take them out? No, or I can't it, remember what the law is on that now. Different laws, different parts of the yeah. UK. Uh, I think you can get. Uh, I I know we. Uh, when I was working on a river, we. Um, uh, used to put out surveillance traps for them, but like any trap, you got to check it every day. So yeah. it's it's a bit of a nightmare. But there, there was a guy down south somewhere, and he thought he was doing a great deed by taking out all these American signal crayfish, and it turned out that he just murdered a whole bunch of native crayfish. I, I, I have see, been seeing online more and more people. Um, Scott Ree was eating recently. eating them. So there must be some rivers down south that you can just. They obviously know there's just. Uh, I well, think they're probably farmed as well, aren't they? I, I, I'm not sure. Fish, not the freshwater ones, but. Not sure. I'm not sure. I used to dive for them in Australia. The not the freshwater ones, the saltwater ones, and uh, they are in huge numbers. I also worked on one of the the crayfishing boats there, and uh, the the crayfish they're in very large numbers. And but they they manage their fisheries really well. But what amazed me is how big these damn things are, and how powerful they are. I mean the the the, the sea um, crayfish they've got there are probably like probably, probably bigger than any lobster I've ever seen in this country. Really? Way bigger. Way bigger. They just don't have the big pincers. That's all. <laughs> and they can swim faster. Incredible little things. Well, li- li- little big, big things. <laughs> we started talking about salmon. Now we're yeah. talking about crayfish. Eh? <laughs> uh, Mark, how can people find out more about the Missing Salmon Project and or get involved in some way? Um, we have. 
come and have a look at the Atlantic Salmon Trust uh, website or Facebook page. It's got uh, links into the Missing Salmon Project. Uh, we're going to be keeping up to date. Um, one of the things that we really want to do is do our work transparently, so we're inviting people to come and see the work. Uh, we will be putting as much of it, not in dry, dusty, scientific tones. Please, no, please. No, I, I, Entertaining. I, I, I cannot, Pretty I pictures. can't abide those. Uh, <laughs> I am, uh, I can't understand them either. Um, the The aim is to get the video footage, get stuff on our website, our Facebook page, and really as we're going along so people can see how the work's been, uh, how the information's been collected, what it means, talk to people, because um, come see. Uh, we will be starting the work in the field next spring when the smolts go to sea. So we're starting to gear up shortly. And um, that'll run through the late spring, start to take out all these receivers in July, re start to do all the homework over and the writing up over the summer and early autumn months. And then we intend to run a couple of um, conferences, in one in London, one in Edinburgh. Um, and for bringing together the research that we've we've undertaken but do it in a non-technical format so it's just plain speaking this is what we found because if we want to convince people we need the scientific evidence yeah but we need to be able to communicate it and i think perhaps that's where we, we touched on it earlier but where we went wrong with where scientific community went wrong with the hatchery debate was because they couldn't communicate properly well we've got some difficult issues to face and we want to be able to um talk openly about that with people so it'll be on our website we're also open to come and talk to people face-to-face -face, wherever they are. So if there's a group wanting uh, someone to come along and talk about the work, we're quite happy to come and do that. But AtlanticSalmonTrust.org is the best place to start. Well, yeah, I, I hope that within my lifetime I can see a big turnaround you know. That's what we're, we're... I hope so. That's, what, that's why we're doing it. That's we're not do. there just to do more research. We're doing this for a reason. And our volunteers and our trustees are extremely focused on turning it around. Nothing, nothing else matters to them. They're a good bunch of people. Well, I mean, I, I can't, it's going to be very interesting to see what the outcomes are. Uh, and uh, we might even go and do a podcast from in the field when you're starting to put the trackers. That would be good. pretty cool, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be. Uh, and Will, how can uh, people find out about what you're, you're up to if they, if they want to come and fish with you guys through your, your fishing school? And your yeah, so... Um, with your brother, who's not here today. No, you can uh, just go to... TwinPeaksFlyFishing.com. Uh, basically, if anybody fishes a little bit and wants to sort of get in, perhaps you've done trout and you want to get into the world of salmon, or, or perhaps you, you can't do cast salmon. for shit like me with a double handed yeah. rod, <laughs> or you want to just learn how to spade cast, or you want to just have a go, just we're we're kind of that stepping stone to try and get you into the sport. So uh, get in touch, TwinPeaksFlyFishing.com on. Um, Instagram, Facebook, uh, website, yeah, all the usual everything. places. All the usual places, yeah, um, yeah. And we really, really, really welcome it. Whether you're a big group, father and son, or just one person that fancies giving it a go. And uh, Will's a fellow filmmaker, so you can go and check out his films. I'm sure they're probably on your website. They're on the website, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, gents, thank you very much for taking the time to come and see us today. I think it's been a fascinating conversation. I think we will have uh, enlightened uh, a lot of people with this podcast. So. Yeah, very welcome. Thank Great. you. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to contact us, it is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. 
That is the best way to contact us. Uh, but we're also on all of the social medias. Facebook, it's Podcast Into the Wilderness. Instagram, which is probably the thing we put the most on and we're a lot more active on it, is just Pace underscore Brothers. And if you don't have Instagram, I encourage you to go and get it because it is one of the better of the social media platforms. And if you message us on Twitter and we don't reply, don't we'll, think we're ignoring you. It's we just, just we don't really yeah, use Yeah, we just check it once every six months or a year. <laughs> um, to be honest, I think we probably will delete Twitter at some point because it's just pointless. Like, we don't, For we, us, we don't use it. And if you'd like to check out any of our stuff, then it is www.thepacebrothers.com. You can download the show on many, many, many platforms. Spotify, iTunes... Stitcher, Podbean, Podcast Addict, you name it, we're on it. And if you want to um, have a look at the videos that we've made, I've just finished putting up a whole bunch uh, on our Vimeo channel, our Pace Productions UK Vimeo channel. Um, Hopefully, if you're a a regular listener, you will know that what we do most of the time is make films. So uh, you can go and check out, I think, all of the major films that we've made now on the beautiful HD on Vimeo, which is much better than you. It is better, and uh, yeah. If you want to check out our our films or anything, uh, you can use the Pace Builders channel, and it'll show you some of them. Or go on the I think on the bottom there's a link to the, our production um, company's website, which is Pace Productions. I UK. thought you forgot what it was called. I, I there, genuinely <laughs> did. Oh, I, I forgot what the website address was there for a second. But we will we'll join you in two weeks' time. I'm not 100% sure who's going to be on because we're in Ireland, so we don't know if uh, what, if we'll have one of those guests on or we'll have someone else. But it'll be good, whatever it yeah, is. Whatever it is, it'll be good. Thanks for listening. Bye.